pottery barn, and I've never been in a pottery barn before. They're so fun. They're very fun, and but Your I walked mom loves in pottery barn. I don't think so. Yeah, she does. does she complained she really? big time when the one in Towson Town Center was closing. But that's where I went. So it, no, she likes Pier One Imports. Oh. Not pottery barn. Different, but (laughs) similar. Um, So, but yeah, I walked into this pottery barn, never been in one before, only heard it through like friends lore. um, And everything was very like white and like classy. And I was like, I don't see any Halloween decorations anywhere, but I checked online. I know that it's here. So then I had to go through like the embarrassing thing of like, they had to go up into all the things that had just shipped, find this. And they brought it down in the cardboard box. I'm surprised you made it through that awkward I, encounter. If it, if there was one more like customer in the store that they were like ignoring for me to get my stupid ghost light up doormat, then I would have absolutely had a panic attack. But thankfully there's like no one in this store. So she, and the lady was really nice. I actually gave her like a nice review on like the, how was Nancy? And it's like, <laughs> she was great. But yeah. So she like brought it down, like unpacked it from the, cardboard thing and uh, now i have that i bought my mums today which I i'm really to get excited those about. before your bridal shower I know. <laughs> i'm like on my i am gonna get the house will be great yeah i'm just not there yet well, if you want to borrow the doormat you can uh, um, no i want one. no no you want pumpkin o'clock no <laughs> no for my real life i want like the two legs of the wicked witch of the east with yes. just the shoes and that's it perfect but not in like black and white and red i want it in like the browns of yes. the fall um but no for your bridal shower shower things are gonna be classy as fuck (laughs) well we're not here to talk about doormats we're here to talk about two classy as fuck ladies (laughs) true true (laughs) this is herstory on the rock with katie and Allie. this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. <laughs> and we're not historians, but we are semi-professional drinkers. Yep. And I would say professional Googlers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wikipedia-ers. Yes. So for if, sure. if you want the facts that you also have complete and total access to, this is your show. <laughs> but with a little more alcohol <laughs> Yeah, involved? exactly. Right. A little more yelling, um, but that's fine. Right. If you are busy though right now dealing with a clerk at pottery <laughs> barn who is unpacking your fall decor mm-hmm. you don't want to be rude and like look at your phone because she might be like oh my gosh she's looking at the website and like judging me no you don't want that to happen so you're no. just gonna stand there with you your just, headphones in which is not rude and go like uh, <laughs> i'm so sorry i'm so sorry so you're doing that so you don't have time or the couth to look on your phone to see what these women look like <laughs> so we're gonna describe them for you we're gonna get a little physical physical Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like i'm doing martha stewart <laughs> should be a dame martha stewart (laughs) oh my gosh unreal so martha is currently 79 years old 79 what i know she is five foot nine blonde woman with a square ish face Mm -hmm. i always picture her with a square face but then sometimes i look at her in pictures and i'm like girl knows her angles Mm -hmm. she traditionally wears her hair parted slightly to the side and cropped in all kinds of layers yeah she's got she's got it going on um, she has a lovely complexion and even at 79, you can tell that this woman used to be a model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in terms of clothing, she is typically in either 
dressy business casual uh-huh, uh-huh. or garden cabin chic. Absolutely. Bitch loves a peep toe wedge. <laughs> I know one thing about Martha Stewart and she loves a peep toe wedge. My God, yes. <laughs> so, um, also, shout out to my best friend, uh, Claire. Martha is her hero. <gasps> her absolute hero. She references her in every corner of her home. <laughs> um, so I texted her earlier this week and was like, guess who I'm <laughs> doing? And she was like, Nellie Bly being a smart ass yeah. because I love Nellie Bly, but all right. Who are you doing? And what does she look like? Okay. I am doing Billie Holiday. She was an absolutely gorgeous kind of light skinned black woman with dark hair that was sometimes curled, sometimes straight, but always back and away from her face. Like she was just like, that's my look, whether it was like kind of like up and curled or like in her later, she put like did like a kind of like a tight ponytail. Um, but it was often garnished with her signature flower, white gardenias, uh, which we'll get into. She had an oval face with these beautiful full lips and far reaching long thin eyebrows and like wide set almond eyes that are often closed in pictures of her because she's like belting out a song and like just showing her beautiful long neck. Mm. Um, and she can be seen in all sorts of evening gowns and casual wear. Um, she loves to be photographed in sunglasses and a fur coat though. That's like her (laughs) thing. Um, and when two white men burned some cigarettes out on her fur coat, she asked them to step outside and proceeded to beat them up. So good for her. I mean, absolutely also don't buy fur coats because it's really not good that's true too yeah <laughs> don't buy fur coats we'll say it was fake um but <laughs> but yeah so that is what she looked like wowza <laughs> well are you ready to dive into this brunch batch cocktail I yes made? i am we did like a whole martha-esque photo shoot like that could be on the living of martha stewart living well this cocktail is called martha stewart drinking <laughs> <laughs> And it is a full-ass bottle of Chardonnay. Perfect. Mixed with um, rosé on top. But don't pour the rosé in until you're ready to serve it Mm -hmm. because you don't want your sangria to be flat. Yeah, that's true. Um, And then the fruit that I put in it was lemon, grapefruit, and orange. Perfect. And it looks so cute. Flowers, you have to have flowers while you're drinking it. They don't Mm -hmm. have to be in it, but you have to have some sort of like flowered table setting. Absolutely. So (laughs) cheers. Cheers. Mm. It's just so refreshing. Refreshing. And it's also a good excuse to buy yourself a bouquet of flowers because I'm a firm believer in buying yourself flowers. Oh my gosh, yes. Firm believer. These flowers were courtesy of producer. Well, that's nice. But I do (laughs) buy myself flowers, especially when I'm having a bad day. But I buy myself roses. Isn't that weird? I don't like it when other people buy me roses because I don't in particularly like roses, but I find myself special enough to buy myself roses. Very interesting. I know. It's a weird... (laughs) I need to go to another therapist. Probably. (laughs) Okay. So tell me what you know about... Martha Stewart. I know that I love her. I know that she was a model and she had a cooking show and I have, I subscribe to her magazine, Martha Stewart <laughs> living. I get it every month. Well, it's a 10 issue one, but, um, and God, I have her Martha Stewart manual, which I reference all the time. It's just like how to do everything from like literally 
reframing a door. Yeah, the housekeeping manual. To yes, she has multiple to hosting manuals. a different. <laughs> this is like her absolute total. It's just called the Martha Manual, and mm. it's how to do everything. Like she teaches you how to compost, and it's just. It's incredible. And I want to, I love her because she can actually do everything that she says to do. Yes. And that's what I find most impressive about her is like, she does not fake it. No. She, you know, obviously like she probably hires people to do a lot of stuff, but like if she really wanted Now she does. Yeah. But if she really wanted to like, you know, turn the tulip beds, she knows exactly how to do that. She does. (laughs) So Martha has lived a million lives. I feel like in her (laughs) 79 years, she has had career after career after career after reinvent after reinvent after reinvent. And I just could not be more wowed. Um, so much so that I'm going to enact the Madonna clause because Mm -hmm. some of this is going to be like, then Martha did X, Y, Z. So if I don't tell your favorite Martha Stewart story, know that I haven't seen every episode of Martha Stewart living (laughs) or every episode of like Martha and Snoop. So on VH1. So I need, um, I did my best. So Martha was born in Jersey city on August 3rd, 1941. She was the second of six children. So she's going to be taking care of younger siblings. Mm-hmm. Usually those older kids do have more of a housekeeping task yeah. in their life. Her dad was Edward Castira, and her mom was Martha Rakowski Castira. Not a ton about Martha's childhood exists. Again, I didn't necessarily read like a biography or anything, Um we did our online and podcast and YouTube research, but she's of Polish descent and they moved around in Jersey a little bit when she was little and she's in this lower middle-class family. It's a big family and a lot of responsibilities falling on her. Um, and because she's in a large family and they're not going to have money for every little thing, their life is kind of about making sure that they can do things at home, mm-hmm. a lot of homemaking. So you didn't buy food out all the time. You would can your preserves in the winter when fruit was scarce. Um, her mother, who was also named Martha, taught her how to cook and how to sew. She learned how to process and preserve things when she visited her grandmother in Buffalo. Her father was a passionate gardener and passed on all of his knowledge to her. So this is like in the first decade of Martha's life, she is really learning the ins and outs of survival. And that's mm-hmm. why when you say she can do all of this, it's because she actually did it and like had to, to survive. Yeah. It wasn't like, and of course like her house was cute. Like you don't have to garden, but they were gardening and she did it. Yeah. She knew at a pretty young age though, that if she wanted anything, if she wanted clothes, if she wanted money for college, if she wanted to go out with her friends, she'd have to do it herself. Mm-hmm. So at 10 years old, she started working as a babysitter. But because of her placement in New Jersey, she ends up being the babysitter for the kids of New York Yankees players. What? (laughs) Unreal, right? Oh, my gosh. So Mickey Mantle, Uh, Yogi Berra, and Gil McDougald. McDougald. <laughs> is that a real McDougald? Yeah. It's there's a D at the end? Yes. That's so silly. It's not like Trey McDougal. That's so weird. It is weird. 
<laughs> but they're all New York Yankees players. But specifically for Mickey Mantle and his wife, Marilyn, they had four sons. And Martha would, at like 10 years old, she would watch them and like plan their birthday parties. What? These kids. <laughs> and like get money for it. That's incredible. And it's such a, it's so weird. There's pictures of her older with the entire, like, Mantle family, <laughs> <laughs> which I find fun. But that made her, like, a lifelong New York Yankees fan. That's so great. Yeah, it is great. At 15 years old, Martha gets picked up for some modeling, and she is Stunning. Martha Stewart is beautiful. She's featured in television commercials and magazines, including a whole bunch of advertisements for cigarettes. Because <laughs> back then, that was all the rage. Um, she also is doing extracurricular activities at her school. She's on the school newspaper. She's in the art club. This is not a girl who likes to sit still. And that's kind of part of her. She's one of those people who doesn't need a lot of sleep. You know how, like, Albert Einstein is said mm -hmm. to have slept four hours a night? That's how Martha Stewart is. Um, she's like, I really only sleep four hours a night. And she also said that she doesn't get sick because she doesn't have time for it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Trust me. She um, injured her Achilles tendon recently, which is, like, one of my biggest fears. Right. And she was like, get me the scooter. I cannot sit still. Like I could tell she was like, this is not okay. Cause that's a long recovery. Oh time. yes. Oh yes. <laughs> and that's the thing about her. She will never sit still. And I think her mental capacity to overcome things like outdoes her physical like ailments. Oh yeah. Like I'm sure that she was cured of that Achilles tendon industry um, industry, industry. <laughs> that Injury. medical industry <laughs> yeah big tendon um <laughs> I'm sure she like recovered from that like faster than humanly possible just because she willed it to <laughs> yeah yeah so so true all the while you know she's not getting sick she's playing her games she's modeling through school she's not being frivolous with this money though mm-hmm she is saving it so she can afford college. Mm. She's like, no matter what, I'm going to college. Which is interesting because as a kid, she had this obsession with going to the library. We hear this in a lot of our stories. Mm. Bingo. And she was wanted to read every book in the library. Mm. That was her dream. I want to go to the library and I want to read every book. I think she's just a sponge for information. Mm -hmm. So she's saving all of this money so she can afford college. Um, because her parents couldn't do that. So when she graduated from high school, she does get into Bernard College of Columbia University. Her original plan is to major in chemistry, which what? is just baking on steroids, right? Yeah, really. Yeah, okay, right. But then she switches to art and then history and then later architectural history. I think she just gets bored very fast. Yeah. Have yeah. you ever met anyone like that? <laughs> uh, I don't hold a candle to this woman, but she just was bouncing around because she wanted to learn more. And she's like, I've learned that. I need something else. I've learned that. I need mm -hmm. something else. And during all of this, she has a partial scholarship, but 
she's also modeling to supplement this. Mm -hmm. And by this time, she's getting paid $50 an hour, <gasps> which is a lot back then. Oh, my gosh. And a lot, like, for a model, but for anyone back then. Yeah. I mean, I'd be thrilled with that today. Right. Like, what? <laughs> like, please? <laughs> um, and her clients include highbrow names like Chanel. <gasps> she's modeling for Chanel. Oh, my gosh. I think at one point, okay, when she was in college at one point, because she was doing all this modeling, Glamour put out a thing, and she was in the top 10 best-dressed college women in the country. That's crazy. Like Martha Stewart. She's just been so good forever. Like, <laughs> that's insane. Not, she, I mean, even in jail, she killed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, this woman cannot stop. Okay. During her time in college, she met Andrew Stewart, or Andy, who finished his law degree at Yale. They married in 1961 while she was still in college, and she finished her double major. She and Andy very quickly after that had a baby together, Alexis, and that would be her only child. Mm -hmm. So Alexis Stewart. When Alexis was about two, Martha starts to work for her father-in-law for a little bit. And her father-in-law is a stockbroker. That'll oh, come back. <laughs> okay. Put a feather future. in that cap. So um, she's working there. And she gets a little bit comfortable. And then she starts just... It was described in the article as wearing hot pants to her workplace. Whoa, okay. <laughs> wow, wow Martha. She was like, I'm going to like go in. Figuratively or literally? Literally, like, I'm going to wear my skin-tight pants, my modeling pants to this firm because I don't give a shit what you think about me. This is how I feel comfortable, and I can be a stockbroker, you bitch. Okay. It was like what she was doing. I mean, I feel like it's mental hot pants and physical hot pants. <laughs> she's got, Get your she's mental got, hot pants on. <laughs> tote bag, tote bag. <laughs> Get your mental hot pants on. <laughs> Love it. Um, so together, like, the couple's kind of bouncing around. She doesn't stay there for long. Andy decides with his law degree he's going to found a publishing house because obviously you deal with things like copyright and mm -hmm. trademarking and yada 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 so he becomes the chief executive of this publishing house and she's working as a stockbroker so they're like we're gonna buy this amazing 1805 farmhouse in connecticut and we're gonna redo it and the, just like this old ass house <laughs> And that later becomes the set for Martha Stewart living. Is this the uh, Bedford, Connecticut? Is this the Bedford house? The Bedford house. Perfect. So that's beautiful. Wait, no. The Bedford house is in New York. Okay. This is the 1805 Just farmhouse. The, the Connecticut in, house. The Connecticut house? <laughs> <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, everybody. She's got a fuck ton oh of property. Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> many. Like, I'm just so much land. I was, like, trying to figure out where exactly she was living this entire time. She's like the president. Like, she could be at, like, any house at any time. I mean, I would say she's more like Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> the, she has the real property. Mm -hmm. The president's just kind of, like, always on that damn plane called That's true. Eagle One or some shit. <laughs> Air Force One? <laughs> no. I'm in uh, Star Wars land. Eagle One, behind you. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Martha, during this time... Her talent for restoring and decorating old homes becomes super obvious. So, like, I should have her over. Mm -hmm. Martha's 
first move from there is like, I'm going to start a catering company in my basement. You would think like, oh, you redecorated this house. But her strong, like confident self is confident in cooking. Yeah. So she's like, I'm going to start a catering company in my basement with my old modeling friend from modeling days. Her name's Norma. The venture quickly became successful. People are like, this is great. But it started to sour when Norma alleged that Martha was difficult to work with and then started taking other catering jobs behind her back. Mm. So... I think this is really common of super successful women. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to splice out in my research where the trope is. It's like there are super successful women that are difficult, but they're difficult to like a point. And then there are loud women. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a big difference. Yes. And I, I, I don't know what's your take on that. Like how to, is it just that women are always going to be portrayed as more difficult when they know what they want? Yes, I think they will always be portrayed as difficult when they know what they want. But I also think, as you're saying, like, there's a big difference in if you actually know what you're doing versus, as you said, if you're just being loud, you know, because there are people everywhere, men and women and otherwise, who are really loud and don't actually know what they're doing. And (laughs) And it's frustrating because then they fall under the, Oh, you're just saying I'm loud because I'm super successful. And it's like, that's actually not what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I'm actually asking you to shut the fuck up. Right. Exactly. So, and I think it's something that gets brushed over with men because they don't need to always be right. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like they can be allowed and not be judged for it. You know, and or they don't need to be loud. Yeah. Both things are true. Right. You know what I'm like? So I think that she is a woman who just knows what's right and what's not and is not going to sacrifice quality for being nice. Mm. Like I have talked, <laughs> I talked to my dad about this one time. I was like, I just love that Martha Stewart is just like, there are no like ifs, ands or buts about this. Like, this is how you set a table. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I don't care that you don't want a salad fork. Like salad fork belongs in a, in a place setting if you're doing it right. right. You know? And there's just like a quiet rage about her. That I <laughs> a quiet rage. That should have been the name of the yeah. cocktail. <laughs> <A> quiet rage. <laughs> but I think that she can be abrasive because she doesn't – I don't know. I just like that she's not trying to be like – Susie homemaker I'm gonna make you chocolate chip cookies because I love you she's like I'm gonna make you chocolate chip cookies barefoot contessa (laughs) no she's like I'm gonna make you cookies to show you how fucking good my cookies are like better than yours because I have it down to a chemistry scientific but yeah so I don't know that actually answered the question literally I just want to I just Um, put in my notes discuss So Martha soon bought Norma's part of the business. And then she's like, you know what? I'm just going to go and work at this gourmet food store. I don't want to do this catering thing anymore called the Market Basket. But she ends up having a disagreement with the mini mall. And she's kind of (laughs) like ends up leaving. The Market Basket sounded a lot like the Atwaters that Uh you worked at, where it's like this high-end food conglomerate where yeah. it's like you can go and get some artisan bread and mm-hmm. like other shit pasta mm-hmm. 
Sure. Jams, uh, jellies, <laughs> preserves. All the things you need. Yeah. Pie. <laughs> Lots of pie. Andrew had become the president of a prominent New York City publisher. And he's, re- I mean, I'm bringing this up because they did have money backing them. Uh, and I just want you to know that, like, they're both working full force. They end yeah. up getting divorced. But at this time in their life, they are both working full force towards the common goal of being a successful power couple. So he ends up being responsible for releasing the English language edition of the Secret of the Gnome series in the U.S., which quickly becomes a New York Times bestseller. And I've huh. never even heard of that series, but sorry, Claire, I'm yeah. sure it's a library person thing, right? The Secrets and of Marjorie. the Gnomes. Secrets of the Gnomes. I think it oh, was, the Gnomes. It wasn't written in English. It was written in another language and then translated. And he's the one who's credited with that. I mean, if it's not the Secrets of the Rats of Nim, I just don't care. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Her or he. Then is like, okay, Martha, I'm, I want your company your, to cater the book release party. So he's kind of like swooping her in. Okay. Um, thanks for the sponsorship. Mm-hmm. And she then meets Alan Merkin. Merkin, right? Alan Merkin? Merkin. Merkin. If I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he's super famous. Oh, yeah. And the publisher guy who publishes everything. Yeah. And he's super impressed with her talent, her chef ability, her chef ability, her hostess ability, and contacts her and is like, I want you to make a cookbook. And I want you to make a cookbook featuring all of your recipes and photos of your parties that you have hosted. Now, this cookbook the original one was ghost written but it was all her information right so this is like her off the ground cookbook it came out in 1982 and it was called entertaining and it oh the ghostwriter was elizabeth Howes. perfect i wanted to put her name out there because that's fair right it is absolutely okay. fair Good. so following entertaining coming out the she just has a bazillion successful books and this is just some of them she's really good at her name just like jason derula <laughs> martha stewart puts her name in front of everything mm-hmm. so it's martha stewart's quick cook martha stewart's pies and tarts weddings the wedding planner planner <laughs> planner the wedding planner <laughs> starring jennifer lopez Mar- and jason derulo <laughs> just kidding that was matthew mcconaughey and same, it's one of my favorite movies same. and veronica vaughn from billy madison it's great speaking of billy madison has <laughs> sydney allen texted you this week no we'll get there in a minute okay Secret secrets are so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Martha Stewart secrets for entertaining Martha Stewart quick cook menu and Martha Stewart Christmas. Am I right? I have here for it. (laughs) So at this time, she's also writing newspaper columns, magazine articles. She's writing pieces on homemaking mostly. I mean, she's grinding, grinding, grinding. She's on Oprah. She's on Larry King live. She's everywhere in the country. She and her husband, because of the pressures of this work, end up separating Mm. in 1987 and then divorced in 1990. They both have these high-powered jobs. Yeah. They're both traveling. It's just really hard. Yeah. Well, I'm sure at some point it's just like, I feel like they're both very logical and they're like, logically, this isn't working. Like, we need to, like, it doesn't seem like it 
from what I've read and heard about it, like it was like a nasty split yeah. or anything like that. And she kept, obviously, because of her whole brand, she kept the Martha Stewart name. It wasn't right. nasty enough for her to be like, I'm done with this. Right. Yeah. And I just, I don't know. I think from what I understand about it, it was just like a, a logical conclusion mm. to a relationship that wasn't working for them anymore. But get this. What? After that, she dated literal Anthony Hopkins for a while. What? The actor? The actor. Hannibal Lecter? Well, she had to break up with him because <gasps> after she saw him in that movie, she could not disassociate <gasps> him with the character and was like, I'm I'm done. Wow. What would you pick? Would you pick being the famous, famous star of Silence of the Lambs or Martha St- being like married to Martha Stewart? I would be pick being married to Martha Stewart. I think I would too. It sounds like fun. Day. It sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like she hosts the best parties. Yeah. We should do an Instagram poll. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, would you? <laughs> being married to Martha Stewart or being the actor in Silence of the Lambs? I mean, would you be Paul of Tarsus though? <laughs> Solar Paul, baby. Uh, now you're like the, the God in Marvel. That's pretty cool. He's but the, what have you gotten? There were that silence of the lambs. Don't think so. We might need to like debate this, this is like a, very seriously in Patreon. It's a pretty serious situation. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> we got to pull up his IMDb and really spice okay. it out. Guys, if you yeah. want us to pull up Anthony Hopkins IMDb <laughs> and argue about it on Patreon, let us know. We might. <laughs> so Martha, shortly after this, signs with Time Publishing Ventures to develop a new magazine called Martha Stewart Living, for which she would serve as the editor in chief. The first issue was released in late 1990 with an initial rate of 250,000 copies. Circulation ended up peaking in 2002 with 2 million copies per issue. Mm. She then is like, okay, it's three years after my magazine came out. I may as well start a TV show with the same name, Martha Stewart Living. And she does. And it starts as like a half hour show. Mm -hmm. And then it's like a half hour show every day. And then it's like an hour show every day with a half hour on the weekends. And it's just like every time you turned on the TV, Martha Stewart was teaching you how to do something. I don't know where they found the time to record, edit, all of this. I don't know. Like, I don't either. Daily TV blows my mind. Because she's also a contributor on NBC and CBS. She was like going on and doing the Julia Child's like cooking segments. Right. And like just on primetime broadcasts, people are having her on on a regular basis. It's crazy. She's doing so much. She is. Uh, the, literally the most. So. Yeah. <laughs> As we like to say. <laughs> she's even... On the corner of, or sorry, the cover, not the corner. <laughs> She's not the tabloids up in the corner. She's on the cover of the May issue of New York Magazine in 1995, listed as the definitive American woman of our time. Whoa. Wow. So every week around Monday, my daughters ask me who I'm researching. And this week I said Martha Stewart, and they were like, what did she do? And I said, She's the world's best housewife (laughs) I was like like, you need to understand and then I was obviously I expanded to like she's an entrepreneur and blah Mm -hmm. blah blah but I was like you need to look at this website and they're looking through the Martha Stewart living website and it's like 12 best recipes for fresh tuna yeah and they were like there's 12 (laughs) 
absurd. It's like, what to do with all those extra fresh summer peaches you grew in your backyard? And it's like, okay, I didn't do that, number one. Um, but I can go get some. I can go get some in a can at the store. <laughs> Same, right? Go to Weber's. I yeah. can go to Weber's. <laughs> Nobody knows what Weber's is. No, that's, that's fine. fine. <laughs> so Martha then is like, you know what? I'm going to consolidate. I'm going to create a business and it's going to be called Martha Stewart Living Omni Media. So she's like gotting it here. Wow. Okay. Delicious. (laughs) She secured funding to make sure she could bring this all together. And it has TV and print and merchandising and brand consolidation and all the different pieces of her company. Because she's like, if I can consolidate... It'll be easy to handle. Mm-hmm. But I also think sometimes when you consolidate, it takes the experts off of each different thing, which yeah. could have not been a good thing. She does serve as the chairwoman, the president, the CEO of the company. Obviously, she does have a COO, a chief operating officer that does the day-to-day life of this. Mm-hmm. By organizing everything under one roof, she could then launch her website, the aforementioned website, which is still great, and even had a direct-to-consumer flower business. Oh, my gosh. You could get floral arrangements from Martha Stewart Living OmniWhatever.com. She's so good at them, too. She is. Mm. Like... I made them for sister-in-law Linda's wedding with help. I mean, April helped. Yeah. (laughs) April was actually, April made them and I was like putting a pin in the flowers (laughs) and like wrapping. But we were like on YouTube, like, okay, next we have to blah, blah, blah. It was, it's hard. Yeah. It's more like, I think people are like, what is it? You just put the flowers in the vase. And it's like, then they're "Mm." all the same height. They got to crisscross. You have to cut and crisscross. And if you're using, you know, arrangement foam, you know, get out. It. like that's a whole nother beast uh, your bestie did that oh yeah she's very good at the flower arrangements yeah it's just uh it's difficult the composition you got to get it right and and you you have to be trained in it yeah you have to like look at the flowers and figure out what you're doing so in 1999 her business ends up going public on the new york stock exchange and this is like her dream come true to go up and like ring the bell and do the thing. Um, I don't actually know if she rang the bell, just her business <laughs> went public, but I'm, I'm pretending that at some point she rang the bell on the New York stock exchange. Cause I think she did. The initial public offering was $18 a share and rallied to $38 a share by the end of trading <gasps> that day, what? making her the first female self-made billionaire in the U S <gasps> Really incredible. That's really awesome. Now, over the years, the stock the stock price slowly declined. Um, but Martha is still the majority majority shareholder. She owns ninety six percent of Martha Stewart Living Omni Media, so she's got all the voting power. But also with big money, more money, more problems. True, true, <laughs> like, true. She just keeps getting bigger. And she knows about the stock market Mm -hmm. and she has shares in lots of different places. So U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission says that Martha avoided losing upwards of $46,000 by selling 400 shares of another business. She, though, had via insider trading received intel from broker Merrill Lynch that the stock was going to fall the next day and that she needed to sell her shares. She sold, and literally the next day, the stock dropped 
16%. <sighs> now, Martha did this, I want to be clear, for $46,000. Yeah. That's a drop in the bucket for, for her. Yeah. For her. But also, being rich on paper is different than having money. I do want to be clear. I think that when people say, like, I'm a self-made billionaire, you think you have a billion dollars in the bank, and that is not true. You have a billion dollars in properties, in the stock market, invested in business. So losing any part of that paper money is actually really valuable. And I'm I'm not defending this illegal action, but I'm just trying to like get you in the mindset of like, it's not like she has a billion dollars sitting in her bank account. Right. Yeah. Well, and that was something I didn't realize because, you know, it's you look up someone's net worth. Right. And the net worth, like you're saying, isn't what's in the bank. It's just like the total of like like commodities surrounding them basically and like their investments and whatnot which I didn't realize yeah and and it's crazy too because sometimes like you end up getting a good deal on something Mm -hmm. but it's worth a lot more so your net worth ends up being a lot higher right than what you actually have in terms of money right which can then be really bad if like a fire happens or insurance and like things can go crazy yeah again like not saying like oh poor these (laughs) poor rich billionaires like but there is (laughs) there's a lot of paperwork and like there all these people have financial advisors there's just a lot involved that even you know myself i don't get yeah i don't don't get get it it. we have a financial advisor and i don't get it and that's why we have one Mm -hmm. (laughs) like so i don't have to deal with it Mm -hmm. so in the months that followed, Martha drew really heavy scrutiny from headlines. And notably, one time she was doing a cooking segment on CBS, and one of the uh, like hosts is grilling her about it while she's doing her cooking what? segment. And she was like, excuse me, I'd like to focus on my salad. What the and hell? I know. It's like, if you're not there for an interview, don't do that. I feel like, isn't that like against the rules? Like, I feel like in normal interviews, like you lay out what you're going to talk about. Yes. Like, so sh- because she's doing a cooking segment, there, there no wasn't rules. rules. <gasps> so they could just banter. <sighs> and it was just like, this host is pressing it. She that did. Hour. <laughs> <laughs> she did resign voluntarily from her position on the board of the New York Stock Exchange. She was like, "I understand. I can't have this post." Mm-hmm. Also, I should say at this time, she's been in like a fifteen-year on and off again relationship with like a guy that works for Microsoft. So, uh-huh. but that ended. So she does get indicted by the government for nine counts, including. Insider trading, security fraud, and obstruction of justice. Oh, no. Because she really did not answer questions. Yeah. She was not easy on the police. But she's not easy on anybody. It's yeah. in her personality. Mm-hmm. She did all the things she was supposed to, though. She stepped down as chairwoman of her own company, but stayed the CEO. Um, there was testimony in court that uh, she was told about the fall and decline. Everybody's like, she knew, she knew. She's still saying, I just sold it. Like, I don't know that she's ever really said that she was guilty. Yeah. She is just kind of like floating out on a cloud. Also, she started to get like pressure from Martha Stewart living shareholders because they were mad because now their money was dropping. So now they're all people who are like big supporters of her are like, Oh, we hate you. But after a highly public 
six-week trial, Stewart was found guilty in March of 2004 of felony charges. This type of money, this type of stock exchange is a white-collar felony charge. Mm -hmm. No question. She got charged with or found guilty of conspiracy, obstruction, and making false statements. She's sentenced to five month, a five-month term in prison and a two-year supervised release. Five, the five first months supervised is like ankle bracelet. Mm -hmm. And the civil, that was the criminal. And then the civil case, she ends up paying back the money she would have lost. Okay. Plus three times. (gasps) Oh. Yeah. So she's in like the six figures. And she has to agree to a five-year ban as CEO, CFO, or officer role in any public company. Wow. So her... I always think of it as just like she went to jail for a short amount of time, but like there were really big, like financial kind of financial and personal because again, she's a person that doesn't like to sit still. So being told like you literally can't do your job. Yeah. That sucks. She had to learn to delegate. Yeah. And she really like, I mean, I get it when you do a white collar crime, you are taken away from business because I think a lot of people who end up doing white collar crimes feel like they own the system. Yeah. It's like, I've been so good in the system that now I want it to be mine. And I see that from her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I just think she got lost in the game. Yeah. And she needed some redirecting and that's what she got. Yeah. And now she like rebuilds herself again. Again. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So... She did petition to go to prison in either Connecticut or Florida, but they wanted her in this remote West Virginia federal prison. They were like, we want you as far from everybody as far can be. And she's like, no, my mother's 90. She'll struggle to visit, blah, blah, blah. Um, The judge just like denies it, denies it. Even her daughter, Alexis, was like, I understand why the judge wants her far away from the media. He doesn't want this to be a scandal. Just go to jail. It's serve your five months and be done. Yeah. And I will say she did everything she was supposed to do. Yeah. Now, every time she's interviewed about it, she's a badass bitch. She like throws some shade. She rolls her little eyes like she does. You know, she's smug about it. Yeah, but she goes. <laughs> but she did everything by the books that she was supposed to do. Yeah, except for when she was obstructing justice beforehand. Well, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but she again she, afterwards. But like she faced the consequences. She did. Unlike the whole fucking college scandal where they bitched and whined. <gasps> and whatever, yeah, just go to jail for a couple months and come home. Yeah, really. I mean, like, what was it like? Paris Hilton was like actually endangering lives by driving drunk and yeah. then spent like one day in jail of her sentence because she and, didn't like, whine cried and they a let her bu- out and cried a whole bunch and they got no she cried a whole bunch but like they typically like a celebrity goes in you do it you go yeah if you drag it out in the media then judges get pissed off and they send you for yeah. longer yeah so just fucking go so um she ends up going to the West Virginia jail She's told she has to show up by 3 p.m. on October 8th, surrender herself. She comes at 6.15 in the morning. She's like, I'm up, I'm at him. <laughs> Which is funny about Martha because if you stay with her at her Connecticut home, you better bring your hiking shoes because you have to hike at 5 a.m. every 
morning that She's you're there crazy. you can't like sleep in at her oh no it's her main house her main house the main, oh my god the one in maine not her main house <laughs> <laughs> the one in actual maine she's got like eight houses on the east coast it's is really... it in martha's vineyard <laughs> possibly um. <laughs> so she arrives at 6 15 a.m on october 8th 2004 she reports she ends up earning the nickname m diddy m diddy <laughs> <laughs> she took up a job and became the informal liaison between the administration and her fellow inmates. The the people special called Scandals that rocked America, they talk a lot about her and they're like, we expected America's goddess of domesticity to like fall from grace. But she just showed up and was like, fuck it. I'm here now. I'm in jail. She spent Christmas in jail, and I would love to see what Martha did on Christmas. Oh, my god! She, she's there from October to March. So, like, her All five, the holidays. Right. <laughs> she's a, she's All right, guys, like, we're trick-or-treating. Let me in the kitchen. I'm going to Everybody's save. mummies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's hysterical. Killed it on holidays in jail. <laughs> She's released on March 4th, 2005, and then gets her electronic monitoring bracelet on her ankle. She served from her home in Bedford, New York, and she could leave the house for 48 hours a week to work. That's okay. it. During her remaining two years after the ankle bracelet was off, she could not like communicate with anybody that had criminal records <laughs> and she also needed permission to leave her area of New York. But after she launches a highly publicized comeback involving Martha Stewart living on TV. She also starts an everyday line at Kmart and is interviewed like, isn't this off brand for you? And she's like, no fucking normal people want pretty shit too. You know, like get out of my face absolutely it's so annoying like you could tell that she was offended she's like i've been in prison and <laughs> <laughs> what i want you to know is that normal people like soft towels look i was forced to go to west virginia <laughs> and <laughs> they also need towels so <laughs> with emblems on them their prison doesn't have flower arrangements <laughs> i was shaken i mean i just never before in my life um <laughs> So she is like really slumming it with her Kmart. Slumming it <laughs> with her Kmart deal. Um, this included some furnishing and now also paint, which was being sold at Sears. I would like to point out that Kmart and Sears are both out of business. <laughs> <laughs> Martha's like, I'm taking everybody down with me. <laughs> if I go, you go. <laughs> I'm the Titanic bitch. <laughs> Just kidding, but she would never play, sink. Play she to would the never end. sink. <laughs> She returned to daytime TV with the show, but then there's also this adapted version of Martha Stewart Apprentice that was <laughs> terrible and was not was not continued for a second season. Woo. But this is when she starts to write her handbooks. In 2005, she released a new book, Martha Rules, on... It's about business and management. Then she's got Martha Stewart baking handbook. She's got the Martha Stewart housekeeping handbook. She's just like releasing thing after thing of how you control your life. And is still doing regular appearances on all of the daytime television. 
Her show ends up getting nominated for six categories in the Emmys that year. She is a huge pet lover, has dogs, cats, ponies, horses, and doesn't wear fur. She used to, but doesn't wear fur anymore. Um, But her farm is, you can't mess with the chi of her farm. Her farm is gray, and all of her pets have to be black. She will not take a not black animal so that her farm is black and gray. Okay. And then she has this breed of horses that if are left out in the sun, their fur, what's it called? Fur? Their mane? mane? Their, all their hair. Yeah. Their hair turns reddish. So she only lets them out in the evenings <laughs> and at nighttime <laughs> because she doesn't want to mess with the color scheme of the farm, Katie. What? Is that good for the horses, though? Do they I like do, that? I don't know. I can don't a horse? So. Can a Can our <laughs> resident horse girl weigh in or at neigh in? I don't <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to what I did last week with my horse work. <laughs> what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> I just. Yeah. Allie Mime's knocking on a door <laughs> and it sounded like a horse clip clopping around <laughs> Colonial <laughs> Williamsburg. Um. But no, yeah, I found that to be the funniest thing. Like, don't mess with the freaking color scheme of my actual animal. You know what, farm. though? If she's going to take out her. Because I know she is absolutely psychotic. Like, no one is denying that. (laughs) Right. Of course. And you know what? If she wants to take it out on these goddamn horses, I... (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) Please don't. But, but yeah, let us know, guys. Do horses (laughs) like the night? (laughs) Black beauty. So... Her Omni Media company launches a line of houses now, <laughs> and they just like build the design of her first homes. Like, oh in my god! The Carolinas and in Maine and New York, you can build the layout. Of, you can buy the layout of Martha Stewart's house and oh, live in it. Claire, you can live in it. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to know this. She also starts an upscale line of houseware in Macy's um, <laughs> and appears in the commercials. It's bedding and bath and cookware and dinnerware and also got a 24-hour satellite radio station on Sirius. Where what? She, she does a weekly call-in show and then every other episode is just people talking about living in a house. She became a regular on Ugly Betty. What? <laughs> and then she began connecting her company with Lowe's because somebody's got to sell her paint now that Sears is out of business. <laughs> and then she was like, do you know what her store on the racks needs? My line of wine. <laughs> so she opens her wine and she has Chardonnay, Cabernet, Sauvignon, and Merlot. I mean, I would like to imbibe. I know. Please. And then she signs with Costco and Kirkland because Kmart's going out of business. She also starts a daytime show on the Hallmark Channel in 2010. She is just bouncing. Then she was on Law and Order SVU. To be completely honest, what I know, you know how I love Mariska Hargitay. Jesus, <laughs> and she starts a cooking school show on PBS. Then she partners with eBay and has her own little marketplace with 400 different marketeers. And then, of course, my favorite. She gets a show with Snoop Dogg on VH1, <laughs> which is so fun. And it's called Snoop's Potluck Dinner Party. And they together did two Super Bowl commercials for T-Mobile, which was great. Oh, they're so great together. Adorable. Like, 
from what I understand, like they actually do like hang no, out they and they are, really like each other. They are like friends. they're they really are friends. Actual, they're probably about the same fucking age. Snoop Dogg is old as hell. Yeah. I can't even <laughs> believe it. He's like, what is he now? Snoop Lion? He's oh, old yeah. as hell. Well, I love that. I think it's like one of their first cooking segments. She was like, okay, now you want to add the white pepper? He goes, why does it gotta be white? Why does it gotta be white? <laughs> <laughs> and she had some... She was like, You want some black pepper? Okay. And she was like, Give me some black pepper. And someone like came from backstage with black pepper. <laughs> Martha is absurd. Absurd. Uh, I just I love it. I also love that segment where like they're on a talk show together, mm-hmm. like promoting their show, and they're like doing that like you know oh i never have i ever and it's like been to jail and she's like i have and snoop dogg's like never have for me like he also has but they make that joke all yeah the time. they make it all the time now he i don't think he's ever had a felony yeah yeah but it is a really like she's like i've been to jail yeah. <laughs> like look at the two of these people uh your implicit bias is showing oh i know not yours the show oh the show yeah that joke, not yours okay wait Okay, in 2018, she was on Chopped, which that's a little unfair. Yeah, yeah. really. Okay. As like a contestant, I think meant like as a judge. Probably Do they have judge. judges on that show. Yeah, right. I've never seen it. I don't know. I like Chopped. In two, we're we're not answering any questions. Yeah. Here. <laughs> in 2019, she grew. Um, no, she did not grow marijuana. She got <laughs> on. <laughs> she got on a company of advisors for marijuana growth. And now she has an HGTV show called Martha Knows Best instead of Mother Knows Best, which is super cute. Her Bedford, New York house is where she lives right now. is 3,500 square feet, which like, so what? Oh, no, that's the one in Maine, 3,500 square feet. Um, and then her and Jimmy Kimmel appeared on Finding Your Roots together in 2020. Apparently, they're related. Her and Jimmy Fallon? Kimmel. Kimmel. They went on Finding Your Roots and their bloodlines. What? Yeah, Jimmy Kimmel and Martha Stewart are cousins. That's so weird. Super weird. She's obviously won countless awards. Most importantly, like I said, it's a waste of time to get sick. She doesn't need to sleep. And when she's not sleeping, she says, I go to the fridge, stand in front of it, and eat out of Tupperware just like the rest of you. <laughs> Just like the rest of you slobs. <laughs> That's Martha Stewart. God, I love her so much. So far. <laughs> what a psycho. Oh, that was perfect. Well, we need to get into the second half because uh, our next story is long and sad and very different. Um, so we're going to make more cocktails and then we'll be right back. To cry. Yep. <laughs> Science and invention is of particular interest to women. I'm Lexi. I'm Haley. And I'm Alana. And we're covering the good, the bad, and the ugly of women's history. Tune in to Lady History every Thursday to hear about different ladies across history and cultures, from astronauts to zoologists. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Lady History Pod and find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are back. Okay, we're back for part two with a kind of desserty cocktail. It is the <laughs> cutest. I cannot. I, like you guys have already seen it on our Instagram by now, but like, oh my! <laughs> it looks exactly the way I like wanted it to, which always is such a good feeling. 
It's my favorite shade of blue, mm-hmm. to be completely honest. And it's foamy and it's whipped creamy. Yes. Oh, what is in it? I need to know. <laughs> so this is called Lady Sings the Blue Carousel. <laughs> good names this we week, do um so it is two ounces of white rum a half ounce of blue curacao um half ounce of heavy cream you shake that all up you pour it into a glass you top it with champagne and then you put like squirt a whole bunch of whipped cr- like i did like three things of whipped cream to look like the white gardenias that billy wore in her hair <laughs> it's great because she it's in all the pictures of yeah her. cheers cheers really cool it's very interesting um yeah i would say if you wanted it sweeter maybe add like a little simple syrup or something Mm. um or you could just add like a whole bunch of whipped cream but (laughs) yeah when you get the whipped cream with it it tastes like a totally different cocktail Mm -hmm. um i i like it both with and without the whipped cream but also you have to be like a hardcore cocktail drinker to like take the bitterness of yeah, because it's more bitter than you think it's going to be. Um, like, the heavy cream softens it a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, if you want it to be a little bit sweeter, you can always add, like, some sugar or simple syrup or something. Stunning. Um, I love it. But this one's more for the optics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, sometimes you need a cocktail for the optics. Mm-hmm. So what do you know about Billie Holiday? Okay, so Billie Holiday is from Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Billie Holiday sang the song Strange Fruit, which Uh is a metaphor for the lynchings that Mm -hmm. were happening in the United States. And Billie Holiday lived a difficult and checkered life, Mm -hmm. but in all was an advocate for people and women of color at her core. Absolutely. So that's what I know about Billie Holiday. Okay. Well, as Allie alluded to, this story is going to be rough. We talk a lot about sexual assault throughout her whole story and abuse and drug use and it's just it's a rough story but it's an important one and then we obviously with the song strange fruit talk about racial violence and just a big warning because like her story is not an easy one and it Mm. it's very upsetting um but it's important um and also kind of madonna claus i mean her life was short but so involved and it's one of those things everybody, it seemed, kind of had a different take on what was going on. So it's also kind of hard to pinpoint the exact truth, um, especially because there are, like, a couple movies about it her that, like, emphasize other things and, like, add in details that weren't really true. And, like, her own memoir has things peppered in that weren't really true, which we'll get to at the very beginning of her story. Mm. So I got pretty much most of my inf- all my information from Hollywood Crime Story it's a great podcast if you like stories about famous people and <laughs> scandals uh they do such good research like they actually read like the book about her and her autobiography um and then there was a YouTube documentary I watched um produced by the BBC all about Billie Holiday so I watched that too so both great things Um, And that was good because it was filled with people who knew her kind of talking about her, which was really nice to kind of really get a sense of her. So Eleanor Fagan. What? (laughs) Yeah. Her name is Eleanor Fagan. Billie Holiday is way cuter. I love a girl named Billie. I mean, good stage name. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you need it, you need it. 
You really do. Uh, she was born on April 7th, 1915 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, her mother, Sadie Fagan, was an 18-year-old unwed woman with a very devout Catholic family who kicked her out of their Baltimore home when they found out she was pregnant. So she kind of went up to Philadelphia to be with Billy's father, Clarence Holiday, um, who was a young musician. And she was like, yeah, we're going to we're going to have this baby in Philadelphia. We're going to be together. We're going to raise our family. And that's the Philly Baltimore like heartthrob. Oh, absolutely. Um, but this dream of a happy family was not going to come to fruition. Um, Clarence ended up leaving Sadie to pursue a career as a jazz banjoist. Um, <laughs> very niche. I feel like that's a bluegrass thing. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but according to Billy, um, like the way she writes it in her memoir, she was like, my mother was 13 when she had me, which like, when you look at census records, just like wasn't true. Um, and she was like, my parents were married and like my father only left to fight in the war and he was exposed to poisonous gas, which ruined his lungs. So he couldn't play the trumpet, which was his like instrument of choice. Mm. So that's why he played the banjo. So it was kind of like, are you saying this as a person who like now as an adult knows jazz and you're like banjo and jazz are not like I wonder if to her it's like more respectable to be a trumpet player than a banjo player. I don't know the politics of big bass brands. Yeah, who knows? Big band, uh, like big I don't. Jazz? Yeah, um, <laughs> big tendon. <laughs> who knows what's going on? Yeah, I don't know. I think um, that sounds like somebody who's just told a story a lot. Yeah, you know, and they just have slowly learned more information, and therefore the story has to shift. Right. And it also might have been like something her mom told her, you know, just like, no, like your dad wanted to be here, but like he went to the war and then he had to play the banjo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but regardless, Billy or Eleanor at the time grew up without a father. So they moved back to East Baltimore to be with Sadie's family. That's where we're um, from. Mm -hmm. We're recording live from no, not live. Um, <laughs> we're recording from East Baltimore. <laughs> Actually, we're South Baltimore right now, but we live. You live mm -hmm. in Northeast. I live in the Northeast. I yeah. used to live in the Northeast. So she's like Southeast. But now I've been shut. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she's mainly living with her great-grandmother and her Aunt Ida, who already had a few kids. Um, and this is the beginning of Billy's tumultuous childhood because, like, Aunt Ida is, like, an absolute monster. <laughs> she was just, like, not nice to Billy, like, didn't care for her. Um, and also, like, the house is kind of crowded, so there's a lot of sharing space. Um, and Billy often had to share a bed with her bedwetting cousin. And if she ever tried to get away from him, like Aunt Ida would like flip out and like beat her. Like, it sounds it like, like the opening okay. scene of Home Alone. Absolutely. <laughs> when that kid just gives him a huge ass smile over pizza and milk like a lunatic. Do you know that that's, that's Macaulay Culkin's little brother <gasps> in real life? Who also starred in Scott Pilgrim versus the world the world yeah <laughs> that's that his little brother plays the wet bed wedding cousin that's so funny i know i know um but because space is cramped in this um small baltimore row house uh her great-grandmother one night was like hey billy can you like just like you can stay with me can you just like comfort me while i'm sleeping like i'm not feeling well so she said okay so 
her grand- great-grandmother wrapped her arms around Billy and the two fell asleep. But when Billy awoke, the arms around her were stiff and cold and she couldn't get out of her great-grandmother's grasp. That rigor mortis had set in? Yes. Her Katie. grandmother had passed away in the night while holding Billy. And I mean, at least her grandmother passed peacefully, but like that's not peaceful for a child. No, 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 no. No, her grandmother didn't pass peacefully. And then to make things worse, Aunt Ida punishes Billy for this. Like as death? Yes. I don't understand why she gets punished for this, but she does. Um Billy was punished a lot in her childhood for some things that she did and others that she did not. Um, Like, she did love to sing dirty songs she learned on the playground. (laughs) Me too. Same, same girl. Um, But that is when she showed up to school. Uh, She liked to skip school a lot. And when she was nine years old, she finally got busted for playing hooky. And when I say busted, I mean, like, really busted. She was brought before the juvenile court of Baltimore City on January 5th, 1925, when she was nine years old. And she... You can't openly skip school. It's, like, literally against the law. But, like, she gets sent to jail. That's... At nine years old. That's messed up. Her parents should be in trouble. Should be, like, getting her to school. But also, no. the school should the school and the parents should both be held liable like, for negligence, not the child. No. So Billy gets punished. She gets sent to the House of the Good Shepherd, which is this like Catholic Catholic reform juvenile detention center where she was baptized on March 19th, 1925. But that's like all the good that was happening out of that place. I don't even know if you can qualify that as good. Uh, she oh, was baptized. Yeah. <laughs> we blessed you with Christ. Go on now. Go on. Get um, out of here. <laughs> she was much younger than the other girls and they not only taught her how to break even more rules and get away with more stuff, but she was also sexually assaulted here because the older girls apparently would just like really abuse like anyone younger and she was the youngest one i mean that happens a lot when you're in a group of people who have been sexually assaulted yeah like unfortunately like but like it just happens like because you are taking out those traumatic emotions on someone else yeah it doesn't excuse the behavior but it becomes more common and then becomes a cycle no absolutely and there were also just in my completely And there were also just, like, strange punishments at this place. So girls who broke the rules were made to wear red dresses, so they stood out. Whoa, Hester. Mm-hmm. Um, and once – this is such a messed up story. One time she got into trouble, and the school wouldn't let her sleep in the dorm room with the other girls. Instead, they made her, they made her sleep in this separate room where she wouldn't be alone. Uh, she was placed with another student – who had passed away earlier that day, and they were keeping her body in this room until the coroner could pick her up. So yet again, Billy, before the age of 10, was made to spend the night with a corpse. That is terrifying. I hate it! A dead person? Yes. The school was just like, that's punishment enough. She's like, I've already done this. So it's like even worse for me. It's like traumatic now. Yes. You're like making me, it's PTSD yes. in this case. Oh my. I don't like that one bit. No. So after nine months in, you know, care, she was <laughs> paroled. 
on October 3rd, 1925, uh, to her mother. So her mother's kind of back in the picture now. She'd gotten her shit together and even opened up a restaurant called the East Side Grill. And so she and her mother are working together in this restaurant, very long hours. Um, and it wasn't even her only job. Billy also worked as a domestic worker, specializing in cleaning the marble steps outside of Baltimore Row Homes. Same sweet nightingale. Mm-hmm. Which I remember very specifically, like, it's a something that, like, is lore in Baltimore of, like, the marble steps. They're so beautiful, <laughs> and you can take pictures of them up the street. Mm-hmm. And also, we have the longest continuous stream of row homes in the country. Do we really? Yeah. Wow. So, like, the longest continuous set. It's just, it's not in the world because England has one that's longer, mm. but, like, we're, like, second best. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, they're all so much older. Mm-hmm. But it is just, like, the Baltimore row homes are big and beautiful and terrible and like it's just this like immense it was like the wealthy and the middle class and like the lower class all converging in this one spot yeah and those marble steps there's pictures of my grandmother sitting on them like cross-legged as a baby and it's so adorable (laughs) no and it's like this thing of like the marble steps were kind of this thing of like Rich people and poor people had them, which I think is really important, too. And, like, if you were a person of lower income who had the marble steps, like, everyone in Baltimore took care of them. But it was, like, your one fucking thing of, like, the inside of my house could be a complete disaster, but those marble steps are going to shine. I have the marble steps, but I don't have the painted screen. Yeah. (laughs) I'm working towards the painted screen. (laughs) And it's one of those things, too, that, like, I love in the opening sequence of Hairspray. It's one of the things they add in, like... The women outside the housewives are, in their house coats are brushing the marble steps because it was a thing. Um, <laughs> it's really beautiful. So anyways. Um, Baltimore she- <laughs> inside. <laughs> Sad Baltimore. <laughs> um, she would also, Billy would sing in various whiskey taverns and storefront churches throughout Fells Point. Oh, I know. Fire. I know. I to touch the places she taught. Um, but of course, she has like three jobs right now. So she has to drop out of school when she's 11. Because <laughs> she has three jobs. Yes. Um, but it meant that her and her mother were the first people in their neighborhood to have gas and electric hooked up, which was just a luxury at this time. Still, especially in like areas like theirs. And apparently the quote from Billy's memoir was... And everyone was fucking jealous. <laughs> like a we, true, were, we were pink on Wednesdays. Like a true Baltimore bitch. Everyone was goddamn jealous Everybody's of me. Jealous of me. Duh. <laughs> it's how I feel on a regular basis. Exactly. But um, <laughs> be more Billy. <laughs> but between when she was 10 and 11, um, she was raped by a neighbor, which was really upsetting. Oh, that's not fun. Um, and then another really upsetting incident happens. Um, another one of her neighbors, a man she only calls Mr. Dick for good reason, tried to rape her after this had already happened. Basically, he coaxed her into his house saying that Billy's mother called him and told him to look after her until she got home from work. And Billy was like, okay. But once she got inside, he took her into a back bedroom and got on top of her. She kicked and screamed and scratched him as much as she could. And suddenly another woman comes into the room. But instead of helping her, she helps Mr. Dick by holding Billy's 
arms and head down. She's still fighting as hard as she can when suddenly the door bursts open and Billy's mother runs into the room with a police officer. So it turns out that Mr. Dick had a girlfriend who was a real piece of work. She went to Billy's mom and basically said, you better get your tramp daughter away from my boyfriend. And Sadie was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And she's like, your daughter's at my boyfriend's house right now hooking up with him. And Sadie's like, what? No, she doesn't hook up. She's 11. And she like runs out and like thankfully knows exactly where she is. Um, And she was like, I know that my 11 year old daughter is not like having a casual relationship with this man. Like something is very wrong. So as far as I know, he was not successful in the rape. Um, But unfortunately, like, you know, it's but it already happened too. It doesn't matter. This is like a really traumatic event. Um, but then other people say it was successful. So like, I don't successful. It's such a fucked up term, but like, I don't know that like this story is another one that gets kind of muddled, but like, it was a really traumatizing point in her life. I think it's an important point to bring up that like sexual assault does not have the end game is not rape. Yeah. Like sexual assault starts way before that. Yeah. And it is like, I think a lot of people will be like, I can't put my hat in the Me Too movement because I don't feel like I've had the worst of it. No, you have had the fucking worst yeah. of it. And it's fine to be upset about it. Mm-hmm. Like, get your ass upset. Yeah. And get on the front line with me, please. <laughs> like, yeah. let's go. So Poor Billy, that's terrible. Uh, I know. And then after this, she was placed yet again in the House of the Good Shepherd, the same like detention facility she was already in, because now she's in protective custody. She was released in February of 1927 when she was almost 12 years old. But by the time she moved out, like after all this, Sadie just moved to Harlem, New York and like left Billy in this facility. So when Billy got out, she was just really jaded to the world. She was stuck with this woman named Martha Miller, who on Wikipedia, it was just like, yeah, Eva Miller's like mother-in-law and I was like I don't know who Eva Miller is like no one said anything about her so she's with this woman Martha and she's just very jaded towards the world she just didn't care what people thought of her she vowed from that day on she would live the way that she wanted and she would never give her money away to a man so little Billy would just strut around the streets of Baltimore saying things like (laughs) you cocksucker you motherfucker suck my ass to just like any man that even looked at her sounds the like the high school where i teach mm-hmm. <laughs> and the thing is she had to be tough because her new job was working in a brothel for a madam named alice dean at this point she's just running errands and stuff for the madam um and of course continuing scrubbing those marble steps also, number one, when a kid's being a bitch ass, they're not mad at you. No, they're mad at the fucking world. Don't you dare blame that child. No. They're a baby child. Yeah. But her favorite source of income was scamming young white guys who ventured into her East Baltimore neighborhood for some tail. So they would approach these girls and for sexual favors. And she'd be like, okay, like, you know, show me the money. So she'd take the money. She'd be like, okay, now take your pants off. And then she was like, well, I have the money and I have their pants. And she would run away. With- <laughs> Do it. Do it. I mean, listen. An absolute the queen. The oldest profession. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oldest profession. 
stealing shit from boys when they're uncomfortable Especially about the she, size of their penis. She fucking knew, too. She's like, these boys are coming down here. They don't know what the fuck they're getting into. No. <gasps> Oh, and now they have to walk home pantless. Oh my gosh. So like, fun. <laughs> so like, fun. It's so great. So, but she also starts drinking around this time. So Billy. poor Billy. Me thir- too. <laughs> 13 years old, just wasted in the streets of Baltimore, calling people a cocksucker, just <laughs> constantly getting into trouble. And yeah. mm-hmm. it just gets to the point where Martha Miller just like can't really handle it anymore. So Sadie calls for her in Harlem and then it's off to New York. <laughs> New York. So she's in Harlem and the place where they are living, her and Sadie, is run by another woman who owns a brothel. So her mother is already engaging in sex work and so is her mom engaging in like survival sex work or like by choice sex work or a little of both? It's probably a little of both. I really don't know. Fine. The story is very muddled. Okay. Um, and Billy starts to, too. So the way they kind of portray it in the movie, like the United States versus Billy holiday is her mom's like, look, like you can go live with someone else. So you can like earn your keep here. It's the career. And this is your career. Yeah. But she's like 13 and 14. So we can just go ahead and call it sex trafficking. Right. Which is disgusting. Um, But at one point, Billy ends up turning down a very like wealthy, high rank customer. And he gets so mad about this that he turns her and the whole brothel over to the police. So she gets arrested and she's off to another jail called Welfare Island for the Wayward Women, where she spends some time. And give that to me as an acronym. Come on. Welfare Island for the Wayfair Women. W-I-F-T-W-W. <laughs> Come up with a better name, friends. Um, that's exactly what it is. It's so, a It's a um so she spends some time there and when she gets out she's like okay i am done with that world i need to focus on just doing something else and she's like what else can i do and she's like when i can sing (laughs) so she starts kind of bopping around harlem looking for gigs you know she plays a lot of uh rent parties like we talked about or like in a different episode and she officially changes her name to billy halliday so Billy, for her favorite actress, Billy Dove, and Halliday was her father's last name. She eventually tweaked the spelling to Holiday, so it was spelled differently in the beginning. And she really started to develop a really unique style of singing, which made her stand out, and it still does. She also looked different than many other girls, thanks to her signature giant gardenias in her hair, (laughs) which all apparently came from uh, a situation where she accidentally burned some of her hair off while curling it, and she needed to cover up the burn spot. (laughs) And so she, like, went downstairs, and there was a flower girl in the front hallway selling flowers, and she's like, give me some gardenias. And the girl was like, okay, and she just stuck them in her hair. And it became her signature. And apparently because of her gardenias came back into style hey listen we all need a we all need a flower comeback now let me tell you where's the hydrangeas yeah bring bring them up (laughs) i love my hydrangeas but not in your hair right that would be that would be be a lot that'd be a lot to be on top of a top knot 
if you were going to do a hydrangea. <laughs> I don't know. Even that. That might be really crazy. I don't know how to put a hydrangea in your hair. I feel like it'd have to be a small one. Somebody write us. Yeah, let us know. <laughs> Did you put a hydrangea in your hair? <laughs> but things really took off when she paired up with saxophone player Kenneth Holland. The two just like really vibed together and they had a really lovely platonic professional relationship. Oh my God, like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. Mm-hmm. Love it. So one night they get asked to perform at this club called Coven's. This woman. Um, I'm sorry, COVID? Coven's. <laughs> uh, this woman named Manette Moore usually performed there, but she called out that night. And it just so happened to be a night when music producer John Hammond had come to see Monette, who was one of his favorite artists. And she was not there. He was bummed. His girl wasn't there. But as soon as he heard Billy, he was like, this girl is something special. He once said about her, her singing almost changed my music tastes and my musical life. Because she was the first girl singer I'd come across who actually sang like an improvising jazz genius. He thought like the world of Billy. Her, I mean, her voice is haunting. That's the thing I would say about it. It haunts me when I listen to her songs. I'm like Mm -hmm. a very, I feel like I'm in an an ethereal space. Yeah. That like, I'm not going to get out of. (laughs) Yeah. It's enveloping. Yes. And. He really couldn't believe that she was only 17. Let's keep that in mind. <laughs> she is 17 when she is, like, discovered. Right. It's like Dakota Fanning as an actress. Yeah. A young child actress <sighs> where you're like, why does she know that many things? Exactly. Scary. So this guy has a ton of connections, and he starts to bring other famous people in to see her to get her, her career off the ground. And he starts telling his friends in Europe about her because he was a writer for a music magazine based out of England. And he arranges for her to record for the first time when she's only 18 with Benny Goodman, which is like a huge deal. They record two songs together that become super popular. And then she starts to record songs herself. Um, But then she's starting to have some struggles with the record companies because they want her to just sing like jazz standards. And she's like, but I don't have a voice for jazz standards. (laughs) Like I just she's trying to just be appreciated for her own voice and not have them make her want to sound like somebody else. Mm. So at this time, she pairs up with another saxophone player named Lester Young, um, who they also just have a lovely platonic relationship like she had with the first guy. And he nicknamed her Lady Day, which she's still known as today. So she's working a lot. Um, she's recording and she's like, you know, playing all over the place. But she wasn't really reaching mainstream popularity the way that some people thought she would or should. And many people attribute this to the fact that she was really particular about the songs that she sang. And we're in a time period at the moment where big bands are really popular. So the headliner wasn't Billie Holiday. It was Duke Ellington and his orchestra or Dizzy Gillespie and his all-stars. Like, you know, the singers were just a part of the big band. But Billie was really keenly aware of her vocal range, and she was like, I sing low and, like, a little slower. And that's not the way these big bands vibe sometimes. And... It was also the exact opposite of another rising star at this time, Ella Fitzgerald. 
who at this time was singing with the Chick Webb Orchestra. So Ella has this really diverse range. She could sing anything, but she got really famous for these like upbeat, big jazz numbers. So she's obviously singing more swing music. And Billy was really singing the blues. Like she was singing, singing these low, slow melodies. So it's like people are trying to compare the two. But they're not comparable. But they're not comparable. And that's like the hard thing about jazz. Because like, I'll admit, I don't know the first fucking thing about music. But they're doing different things at the same time in the same space, which is hard. I think just, I know that like people's brains are like conceptually small. Mm-hmm. I remember like the last Winter Olympics, which is coming up actually this winter, surprisingly, because the Summer Olympics mm-hmm. were so close. But there was... A young skier girl that they were like, are you the next Lindsey Vaughn? And she was like, this is my first Olympics. Like, stop comparing me to Lindsey Vaughn. <laughs> and I think, like, that's this same situation where it's like, I'm Billie Holiday. This is Ella Fitzgerald. You don't have to compare us to understand us. Yeah. But people felt the need to because people like to put things in boxes. Oh, yeah. Apparently, this made Billy kind of jealous, and she went to see Ella perform once and then stormed out like, that bitch! Because, like, people are kind of trying to pit them against each other and basically, like, only one of you can survive, which is not true. Um, It also probably didn't help that they were in competing bands at the time. So in late 1937, Billy started touring with the Count Basie band. And this band is getting really popular. They're going across the United States. But after a while, Billy starts to get really tired of this band um, for a lot of reasons. Oh, I also want to mention, like, her and Ella Fitzgerald do become friends later on in life. Like, People love pitting a cat fight. They really do. And I'm pretty sure, like, it really wasn't as big of a deal as people like to say it was. Um, But anyways. So... She's touring with this band, but they are a black band, so they don't have access to quite as many big venues. Um, They have to stay in weirder places, like, because there are only so many towns where they are allowed to stay in hotels, so they often have to rely on just, like, the kindness of people around the area, just strangers, like, it's just... It's kind of exhausting and big bands are really expensive. Um, So when you get down to it, like no one in the band is making that much because it gets split like a hundred ways. So she ends up leaving the Count Basie band um, for just a lot of reasons. And she quickly gets a new job opportunity. A man named Artie Shaw, who is a big time jazz guy, one of my favorites, asks her to be in his band. And it might seem like a lateral move. It's like, okay, you're just going to another big band and you're going to be touring all the time. Like, what is the difference? But Artie Shaw is a much bigger name and his band is white. So they have more touring power and they get paid more. And this is the first time a black woman had like worked with a white orchestra. And it'll also be the first time a black woman performs across the segregated South for white audiences, like Mm. as part of a big band. So it's a really big deal for the music world. Um, But for Billy, like it's kind of scary. 
And she just said, like, Artie was so nice to me and really protective. Like, she only had good things to say about him, which well, was nice. I, it could have made her a background singer. It could yeah. have been like, this is the white band and you're here as like a yeah. token. Mm-hmm. So she has a right to be scared of like losing oh, her absolutely. identity. Absolutely. Um, and there are a lot of stories from the road during this time on, but unfortunately they sound pretty familiar. Like we've covered a lot of black artists who had to play at venues during this time. Billy would have to enter through a back door. She wouldn't be able to stay at the same hotel as the band. There was one manager who said she wasn't even allowed to like be on the bandstand with the band. And she's like, well, how am I supposed to perform? And already stood up for her and just like put her up there on the bandstand anyways and like did as much as he could. But like there's only so much like it just it really sucked. And people in the audiences, especially like in the South, would yell racial slurs to her. And the venues got so dangerous that sometimes they had to pull her off the stage for her own safety. It got so bad that they had to actually hire a white singer to tour with them to take Billy's place if they felt it was unsafe for her to appear on stage. I mean, she had to have a, what is it called? Like a, a stand in, a stand in like what I, it's so depressing that like there are people who could hear this jazz band on the radio and be like, I love that song. And yet, yeah. if they were to see it in person, which happened with a lot of black music, they were like, not for me. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just, it sucked. But what really broke Billy was when they were playing in New York and they were staying in a hotel and she was asked to use the service elevator because the white guests had been complaining about her presence. She basically told Artie, she was like, look, I have to quit. She's like, I can deal with it in the South because at least they're honest about their racism. I can't handle it up here in the North with everyone pretending like they're so advanced, but really they're thinking the same things. They're just not being honest about it. We hear that 2020. I just, I feel like that's the story of like, and I feel Every, like, black artist who, like, does these things says the same thing. They're, like... Stop pretending. They're, like, at least people in the South are, like, honest and, like, very upfront. Like, I'm racist. And, like, okay, then that's where we're going from. Like, it's my absolute favorite thing about the last four or five years, half decade, about, like, acknowledge your privilege. Yeah. Like, there's so many people, myself included, who are just be like, I'm not racist. And then, like, but are you? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Those questions are really important to ask yourself. Yeah. There are these people in the North and granted that's a long time ago, but we're still dealing with the same fucking shit. Yeah. Well, it's why I thought it was so powerful in the Brooklyn nine, nine latest season opener. where like, Charles is playing that character of like the white guy. Who's like, no, I'm not racist. I'm doing so good. And he's like, where's like, like African prince to work. And he's like, like happy Juneteenth. And he's like being like, and then like he like Venmo's Terry, like a whole bunch of money because he's just like, you're black. You need this. And he's like, Terry's like, that's not what I want you to do. And it's like just this whole thing of like, I understand that you're trying to like show me how not racist you are, but like, it's actually putting me in a really shitty position. It's actually the same thing. It's actually the same. Like, (laughs) 
I just I thought that that first episode it's very like uncomfortable but it's very important to watch of like how everybody deals with it because they just deal with everything that's happened over the past like year year and a half mm. just very upfront. Yes. Um anyways, but so she quits the tour, but don't worry, John Hammond is still in Billy's corner mm. and he gets her a gig at a club called Cafe Society. Mm. And I know I keep saying this, but this is where things really take off. <laughs> <laughs> So now she is the headliner and she can pick and choose her material and exactly how she just could just choose exactly how the shows were going to go, including even like the lighting. She just had a lot more control here than she had on the road. And it was during her time here where she was introduced to a song called Strange Fruit. This song was actually adapted from a poem written by Abel Mirpal a Jewish school teacher from the Bronx. Wow. He wrote this poem. He soon put it to music and he would kind of perform it at teachers union meetings, which is a really brave thing to do because I don't even know if you could do that today. Like people would be like, Oh, come on, like whatever. And the song is famously about lynching and it is not subtle because it wasn't supposed to be the first kind of verse goes, Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. I mean, it just gives you chills like hearing it. It is like the most, we had to like dissect it in like high school English class. And I remember being like torn apart. Yeah, because it is. I mean, he was inspired, obviously, by, like, the photos of black people being lynched in the South because, you know, when the pictures come up, it's, like, the the part that gets me is, like, not just, like, these, like, these bodies hanging from the trees, but, like, the white joy around them, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, all these people being, like, look what we did, like, you know? And it's just so messed up. Um, so he writes this song... Barney Josephson, the owner of Cafe Society, heard the song and brought it to Billy. And he was like, I think this is exactly in your range. I think it would be a really great song for you to perform. Which is shocking because like Barney Josephson is white. And but this is exactly his vision with Cafe Society. He specifically designed it to be an integrated club where people of all races could mix together so there were white wealthy people who came in here um and also like black people who didn't quite make as much money and this was the whole point of the club for him he just wanted it to be a place where people could congregate without being feared of like being judged or like put into the back row for no fucking reason mm. and he also which i think is interesting wanted it to be free from mob influence he was like, I just want one place in New York where, like, I don't have to, an like, someone doesn't have to answer the mob. <laughs> um, so this was his quote about it. He said, I wanted a club where blacks and whites worked together behind the footlights and sat together out front. And here wasn't, so as far as I know, a place like it in New York or in the whole country. So he was like, not only do I want people integrating behind the scenes, but also out front. So 
he brings this song to her and he's like, I think it's really, he didn't have to do because this is a huge risk, Billy playing this song. And she is a little nervous about it. She's like, look, I don't want to face a lot of retaliation for this. But the more she thought about it, she was like, this is bigger than any fear I have. And it also touched her personally because she kept picturing her father. He had died a few years um, before this. He had contracted pneumonia and he tried to get treatment, but he was in the South. And he was denied from every hospital he went to because he was black and he died from something he could have been treated for. I just like the song's hard for me to listen to, but I can't imagine experiencing it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like living and existing as a black person in the United States where people just like you were murdered literally because they were black. Yeah. And then having to sing a song about it and having to go on stage where people don't want you there anyway mm-hmm. is, I mean, the amount of like bravery and passion and trauma that goes into that one decision. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. And that's the whole thing about that. I love about the start of this for Billy is that they made the song into an experience. This song would always close her set at cafe society Barney instructed the waiters that they would stop service a few songs in advance so that no one would be eating or distracted during her performance. And they wow. were, and he also told them, and he was like, and if people are singing or <laughs> singing, like talking or like conversing, like right before she sings this song, he's like, I want you to go ask them to be quiet. Barney's like a cool guy. Can like, I I just, guy like, like I, hello. Can he come in like manage my classroom? I know. <laughs> I can't do that shit. And so the whole room would be silent and he wanted to make sure that it was completely silent. And while the intro of the song was being played, the lights would go down slowly. And then they'd be in darkness and a spotlight would shine on Billy's face. She would sing this song and you could only see and hear her and the music. And when the song was over, the spotlight would shut off abruptly, leaving the audience in complete darkness. And then when the lights came back on, the stage would be empty. I mean, and the night was over. Like it was like, get the fuck out. Like that's it. That's like the, the night end, was over. The end of ladder 49 all over again. It's terrible. <laughs> It's just like, I just appreciate so much that her and Barney worked together to make this an experience that you would never forget. Can you imagine being in that audience? Because that's the type of thing that changed minds and hearts. Yeah. Like, you see it and you hear it and you realize it and you're like, oh, fuck. Because, and also, like like I said earlier, it's not subtle. So it's not like you can be like, wow, I didn't know Strange Fruit was about that. It's like, <laughs> it says it in the very beginning. Like, we all know. Yeah. And I just, like, it's just incredible. So the song soon became a staple of her set. And it, <laughs> it made a lot of people uncomfortable, as it should have, as it was meant to. Um, but it also started quite a conversation some people would applaud until their hands hurt and others would storm out of the club. 
One white man apparently went up to Billy afterwards and said, I'll show you some strange fruit and showed her like an obscene drawing he had made on a napkin. And apparently she just picked up a chair and hit him over the head with it. Good for her. Good for her. (laughs) Assault is always fun. Mm -hmm. The song became so integrated with who Billy was as an artist that she decided she had to record it, which was a task because no record label wanted the burden of this song. That's funny. Billy Holiday's Strange Fruit is like the only thing I know. The only thing you really know. Right. Um... So her producers at Columbia Records found the subject matter too sensitive. So this guy, Milt Gabler, agreed to record it for his Commodore Records label on April 30th, 1939. Wow, they did the same thing to Taylor Swift, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) And this is two years after... And the the movie um, United States versus Billie Holiday makes this very clear. They say in the beginning, this is two years after... The U.S. had failed to pass anti-lynching legislation. I mean, come I don't. On. I think it still isn't passed. Like I think it came up again, and they still haven't passed it. Like, oh, sorry, you can't hang anyone in the streets. I, 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 I murder's illegal. What the? F- I know. Okay. Billy would keep performing the song until she was nearly forced to stop, but that's not for a few more years. We'll get into that. During her time at the Cafe Society, she became quite well-known, and she started hobnobbing with some pretty famous people. Uh, apparently, Horn, her and Orson Welles became very good friends, um, oh, which fine. his publishers didn't like, and some of them even <laughs> threatened her. They're like, stay away from Orson Welles. He's white and wealthy. <laughs> and <laughs> Get out of here. And people were also really mad at Orson. They're like, get away from her. She's black. And... <laughs> But they just, like, didn't care. A lot of people say they had a romance. I don't know. But Billy said in her autobiography, that man was a fine cat and a talented cat, too. (laughs) She totally had sex with him. Stop it. He's a fine cat? He's a fine cat. Yeah. Um, She finally started reaching commercial success at this point, which was really good because her mom, Sadie, was starting to become kind of a financial burden. And Billy... (laughs) her name is cute as fuck. It is really cute. But Billy and Sadie, what great names. I know. Should I start over with my children? Probably. I'll kill them. It's fine. But Billy needed to start making more money to pay all of her mom's bills because her mom had started another restaurant that Billy was basically bankrolling. And apparently one night, because again, like we talked about in the Martha Stewart thing, it's like you have assets, but like all your money isn't liquid all the time. So she was like, oh, I need some cash. So she went to the restaurant to like get some money to like go out one night or whatever. And she went in and her mom like flipped out on her and she's like, you can't take money from me. You can't take money from my restaurant. And she's like, but this is all my money. This is my restaurant. But Sadie refused. She basically like barricaded the cash register and was like, you're not taking a cent out of here. And they got into this huge argument. And Billy turned to her and said, God bless the child that's got its own. And after she left, she was like, hmm, that's a pretty good line. And it stuck with her. So she turned it into a song called God Bless the Child, which became one of her biggest hits. <laughs> hey, listen, if you got a bitchy mom, you may as well Come make on. money off I of it. I mean, she made so much money off of this. It was third in Billboard's Songs of the Year. It sold over a million records, this song. Stop it. I know. It's like one one of those songs where, like, I think people who are, like, super into jazz are like, I know that song. Like, I don't know that song. No, I don't but know that song. 
people know this song. They love it. It's one of her staples, and that's where it came from. So in 1940, she gets together with a man named James Monroe, who was a That's mar- a president. Yeah. <laughs> this guy is not such a president. Not the president. He was a marijuana dealer. James Monroe, but not the president. Yeah. He was a marijuana dealer who specifically worked with Mexican drug cartels. So he wasn't just like a dealer. He was like a, what do you call it? Like a, uh, not, I guess, trafficker. Like he was bringing pot into the United States in like really big quantities. He's a mover and a shaker. Yeah, he really was, which is good because Billy loved the devil's lettuce. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wowza. They were married in 1941, um, but it didn't take long for him to be busted for his dastardly ways. Um, he got arrested for selling drugs, but Billy, being a supportive wife, Hired the best defense team money could buy. Uh, he, the Kardashians. Exactly. <laughs> uh, he ends up only getting a year in prison. But that year apart kind of messed with their relationship. So when he gets out, she's moved on with lots of other men. Um, <laughs> she really liked to date. <laughs> um, and well, what's he, she going to do for a full year? Have sex with no one? Really? Um <laughs> He... People. people do that all the time when their spouses are deployed or assholes. But really? But really. <laughs> so she starts to date around. When he gets out, he gets back into the biz. Their marriage kind of fizzles out. Um, but unfortunately, they're still kind of in a codependent relationship with Billy financially supporting him. <laughs> but before they end things for good... James gives her one last gift, an opium addiction. No! (gasps) Billy! He introduces her to this hip new drug experience. And I say experience because she's not doing like dope just yet. She was smoking opium, which is quite the event you did it with like a group of friends it took a couple hours it was really slow like it was like a whole thing i feel like the closest thing i can gather is like smoking a cigarette versus going to a hookah bar you know like when you go to a hookah bar you go you get the giant pipe you sit you're you're hanging out Gosh, I used to love going to the hookah bar. It, I Towson, went all the, the time. Towson? No, I went to oh. the one on Chopper Road. Oh, stop it. Ew. I, I know. Love, I like the one in Towson. I would, I would go to the one in, on Chopper Road. I I get the experience thing, but also, like, there's an, a level of experience where it becomes dangerous. Yeah. And this is so embarrassing. I used to go there with dylan and we would smoke a bunch of hookah and like oh, do yeah. homework like that was our cafe like we i don't c- think that's embarrassing you don't think like so you're a okay school, you're a college boyfriend yeah you can smoke hookah and do boyfriend do homework with your yeah. college boyfriend. so we do homework and we'd smoke hookah and we watch the ponies because it was yeah. really a gambling den that yeah. place that place is super sketch <laughs> it was anything on java road is super <laughs> sketch <laughs> Chopper Road, I've driven up and down my whole entire life, and I kill. I still can't get I, If you ask me to, like, place things in order on Chopper Road, I could not do it. Stop it. Producer I could not can't do it. either. I ha- he'll pull up to Chopper Road and be like, is our destination? On the right or left? And I'm like, I, I have Chopper Road mapped out like a hero. I can't. That is so funny that you're both like that. <laughs> We're messed up. We need a conversation later. Okay, we'll talk about this later. I can't can't wait to show you my phone because I have a serious... 
photo <laughs> to show you that is going to change your life. So she's smoking opium. But after World War II ended, opium became kind of scarce. Um, one of the reasons was apparently the mob discovered a different drug that was like opium, but easier to sell and no, no, transport. No. no, no, because it was much lighter. They're like, wow, opium. I didn't know this. Apparently opium's really heavy. And you know, what's really light heroin. No. Oh, that's going to ruin all of us. <sighs> so in 1944, Billy started using heroin and it's like the most addictive. I mean, a lot of listeners know that, like, dear sweet fiance went through this and it was so fucking terrible. And also, like, in Baltimore and the East Coast and New York and Philly and Pittsburgh, heroin is like a real, real epidemic. Like, yeah. this is not a joke. Like, no, it's not. You, there is like a one in four chance that you are going to be addicted to heroin. Yeah. It's, it's just horrible. Terrifying. And it is so hard to get out of. And like. Well, because your dopamine spent. Yeah. And as soon as you're sober, all you are is mad at yourself for ruining your whole family. Yeah. I can't imagine. And like the whole thing, too, is like, I think this is probably what Billy was experiencing, too. When you kind of come out of it, you're mad. Like, this is what Casey described. Like, it's like you're mad at yourself. You hate what you're doing. So. And then you get physically ill from withdrawal. So it's like not only are you feeling emotionally shitty because you are doing this thing and like you're stealing from your family members to like go get this thing. But like then like you're also physically ill and the two combine and it's like the only solution is to get high again. To make yourself feel better. Yeah. And then it's just a cycle. It is. And And I it is. An addiction is worse on some people than it is for others, and that is why, like, it is an actual disease. Oh, it's it is. It's not a family thing. No, 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 no. It's not an income thing. It is literally, you're addicted to heroin, heroin is there, and it will destroy your fucking life. Yeah. And with Billy, I mean, it started discreetly at first, like it often does. Um, not a lot of people knew, but it spiraled, and... Oftentimes, how like, do you keep a career with it? I don't know. And like right now, she's also in a situation where she's a person. Another another dangerous thing is when you're addicted to a drug like that and you have a lot of money. Mm. Because not only are you like, oh, it's not a problem to get as much as I want, but also other people around you who are also addicted see you, you as a target. And so that's why people use their families. Yeah, and it's like I don't. We've had. Oh. Katie and I have had multiple friends pass away from yeah, from heroin overdoses in Maryland. I mean, I the the one that hit me the hardest was our friend um when our friend Dave passed away and I told Casey and Casey like Casey was just like that could have been me. Like like you know and, and it totally could have been. He's like, we both had supportive families, lots of friends who like wanted the best for us. And Great like, people. it just didn't happen to me. And it happened to him. Like, it, well, I didn't break down at the funeral until I saw fiance. <sighs> that was when I like started crying. I was like, this was maybe you. And then obviously Caroline's friend's father. Which oh my was gosh. The most yeah. recent. The most recent. But it's like, I think that people, 
people outside of large cities forget that like this is an everyday occurrence like most of us know multiple people who have yeah. died from an overdose yeah and it is horrendous and here i will input a phone number for good rehab and help yeah Beep. so people start kind of targeting her um and she gets together with this guy named joe guy which sounds like the fakest name ever um but like it, <laughs> joe guy he becomes her lover and her heroin supplier which is not oh, a good combo no. So he is not only having this relationship with her and like stealing her money, but he's also charging her extra fees for the drugs that he's providing way overcharging her. So he's like fucking her three ways from Sunday. It's like not okay. Then he convinces her to start a big band with him. But of course she has to foot the entire bill. I hate this. So not only using her. Yeah. So not only does he convince her to hire all these band members and whatever, but he's like, yeah, like we'll do all the booking. But then she has to pay all the fees that they are charged for not showing up to gigs because the operation is being run by two heroin addicts and like they can't schedule and show up. Like it's just like so terrible. And then so this is all happening. I mean, her like other career is going fine, but like, you know, she's making some money from her recordings and whatnot and she's appearing in other places. But one night while leaving a show, Billy just lurches forward and she says, I can feel something inside of me. She goes, my mom just died. No, oh, in her gut. And he was like, Joe, I was like, no, that's not true. He's like, it can't be. She found out the next day that her mom had died the previous day she felt it in her bones that her mom had died i mean they say that about twins i feel yeah. like it, it could possibly be real about parent-child relations oh, yeah. as well yeah and it, even though she had a tumultuous relationship with her mom she was devastated so then she turns more to drugs and alcohol and of course more towards men who want to take advantage of her because she's looking for some kind of relationship to replace this monumental relationship she had with her mom but even while all this is going on you have to keep in mind she is the highest paid female jazz performer of her time she is making a thousand dollars a week stop it right now and specifically at a place called the downbeat club and she's still has to borrow money from friends to fuel her drug habit. That is how devastating this is. I, it's such an expensive habit. And yeah. it is such a, like, it kills your body, your mind, your soul, and your finances, and your family, yeah. and your life. It's just, it's so terrible. Um, so, 1946, she gets cast in a movie called New Orleans. It was a movie being made by producer Jules Levy with a script written by Herbert Bieberman. The movie was going to be their love letter to jazz. And they wanted this movie to show clearly that black people created jazz. And <gasps> Louis Armstrong was going to be the lead. Billie Holiday was going to be the co-star. And... Billy was under the impression that she was going to be playing a version of herself, you know, this black female jazz singer. Um, but when she got there, 
they handed her a maid's uniform. They're like, well, you do sing, but like you're a maid that like can also sing. And she was like, what the fuck? Because like Billy worked a lot, but she was so adamant her entire life about not being a maid. She was like, that is a stereotype. I am not someone's house cleaner. Yes. And she was like, that is so fucking disrespectful. Also, if it's your actual job, go get it. Right. But don't let somebody put that on Put that you, on you. Which is in, in, inappropriate. It's the same way as like when you f- see a female woman in a white coat and you call her a nurse. Yeah. It's not upsetting to be a nurse. No. It's upsetting when you're not a fucking nurse and someone assumes you are. Yeah. It's the same way with being a house cleaner. It's like, that's a really really important job yes it is but don't fucking let somebody tell you you're something you're not just because they think you look that way right and it's also like especially at this time in hollywood it is such a cliche of like oh like the black housekeeper like you know like the the like mammy type of character and it's just like the wind we've all seen yeah (laughs) so she did get to sing and she had a musical number she got to sing with louis armstrong which is like a dream of hers how could it not be but she was just like not expecting to play a maid and that kind of like bummed her out like she was like like i am like a high society woman like Again, like I get paid a thousand dollars a week. Like, I, like it just was really bad. And she and Joe are also having a lot of issues with their addiction, and they're causing a lot of problems on set. Like, he literally flew out to California to provide her with heroin on a regular oh, basis. God. So, because she's even like in like kind of like a supporting role. She is being such a problem on set because of all this that, like, the word gets out that, like, you don't cast Billie Holiday in a movie. So, like, she could have, like, gone on to do bigger roles and people were like, don't cast her. And then to make matters worse, this, her only movie, would completely tank. It was the end. Or, no, it was not the end. It was in the midst of the era of McCarthyism and oh some. Oh, God. And some higher ups were like, hold the phone. You want to make a movie about black people and jazz? That doesn't make any sense. They don't have anything to do with jazz. So we're going to have to cut some of the lies um, from this movie. So they cut a whole bunch of scenes, pretty much all of Billy's. And they basically changed the whole movie to make it clear that like, Black people did not invent jazz, which was not the point of the movie. So then the movie had no point. And then it was just like this fucked up, just complete disaster. And it all ended up being pointless, too, because the guy who wrote the movie, Bieberman, he was sent to jail anyways, and he was blacklisted for being a communist. So, like, he made all of these changes to this movie, and he was still arrested and put away. And then the movie tanked and, like, nobody remembers it because it wasn't what it was supposed to be. And it just sucked. I'm so frustrated. And then Billy's music starts to get into a rut. People are like, I know your thing is, like, slow and sad songs, but it's getting to the point where they all sound exactly the same. Oh, they balloted her. Yeah. And it's also probably to do with her addiction. She so she's like, shows up to shows and recordings completely zonked out. And it's kind of the most she can muster. So there are full days of her recording in the studio that are completely wasted because they can't get clean takes of her songs. And then her most consistent form of income, performing at the Downbeat Club, comes to an end when it closes. 
her manager finally gives her an ultimatum and he's like, look, you need to stop this. And, or like, I, you're not going to make any, like, I can't help you. So in 1947, she enters a treatment center for the first time. Good for her. Some people say that she was getting a nurse to provide for her. And, but regardless, she leaves after six weeks and she, maybe she was clean. Maybe she wasn't, but she immediately gets back together with Joe Guy, who is still an addict, still a heroin supplier. Billy! And so she relapses immediately after. And this is very shitty personally, financially for her, everything. But to make matters worse, she becomes the target of this man who is dead set on destroying just the root of evil in the world, which of course is jazz music. <laughs> she catches the eye of federal Bureau of Narcotics commissioner, Harry Anslinger. This guy is a known racist. He is a very outspoken opponent of jazz and drugs. And of course the song strange fruit in particular. I'm and like covering my face. Right I know. Now. And uh-huh. he uses drugs to target people of color he does that wow because things are different now i know he basically banned the song strange fruit and he told and he told billy he's like you're not allowed to sing this song and she of course refused to comply which famously resulted in her being like literally dragged off stage one night by federal agents like there's a scene in the movie where like which apparently is true like they're literally waiting at the back of the room. And as soon as that song comes on, they drag her off the stage because she wasn't allowed to sing it. And Anslinger decided that if she wouldn't fall in line, he would take her down personally by busting her for narcotics. Mm. And this was a very deliberate action. And he was a part of the reason that certain drugs got, pinned on certain racial groups like he kind of made it was like oh like opium is like brought in by chinese people and like you know crack is for the blacks and like everything like that like all of those stereotypes like come from him and his operation it was a very purposeful like operation of it's a very purposeful racially charged yes way to get rid of people you don't want exactly terrible and if people try and tell you that his actions were not racially motivated, um, Anslinger, when he discovered that Judy Garland was also using drugs, he wrote a letter to the president of MGM Studios, and he said, I think you should send Judy on some more vacations, which is not the same approach he took with Billy. He stuck a federal agent named Jimmy Fletcher on her and had him pretend to be her friend to get intel on her. Jimmy Fletcher later regretted this and Billy forgave him. Some people think that they had a romance. It's not really confirmed. We don't know, but they did get to be friends. Um, but it would be a while before she could forgive him because on May 16th, 1947 federal agents led by Fletcher went into her apartment to search for narcotics. They found a stocking which contained a spoon two hypodermic needles, an eyedropper, and 16 capsules of heroin. 
During the process, she stripped off all of her clothes and then urinated on the floor in protest. Like, she was like, I literally feel so powerless. I don't know what to do. So she, like, did that. She's taken in for questioning, and she admits that the heroin was hers. So she's immediately arrested and charged with narcotics possession. On May 27th, she goes to court for the infamous case, the United States versus Billie Holiday. And she said, well, that's exactly what it felt like. She was like, I felt like the whole country was against me. And the trial is really shitty because keep in mind, she's literally going through withdrawal. So she is so sick and she's not getting any medical attention. And then during the trial, because like they had also been like kind of like making her sign all these papers and she didn't know what was going on. And apparently she waived her right to an attorney. So her lawyer, she finds out, doesn't come to the trial to represent her. She said, in plain English, that meant no one in the world was interested in looking out for me. And so she's going through this trial and she just ends up pleading guilty. She, like, she's like, I just need to plead guilty because I need to get this over with and get to a hospital. She was like, they see the state I'm in. They're obviously going to send me to the hospital. And the judge decides to show no fucking mercy for her. And he basically tells her, okay, you're guilty. But just to be clear, you're not going to a hospital. You're going to jail as a criminal because you're a criminal, not a sick person. Fuck that. Which also is still what people think about addicts. So unfair. Yeah, unfair. Unfair. Like, it's not like, no. We haven't worked on this. Yeah. <laughs> or racism, actually. She was sentenced to one year in, and one day in Alderson Federal Prison Camp in West Virginia. Isn't that crazy? It, I can't believe I that. I know. We'll talk about specific it. Specific facts. <laughs> She, of course, got into jail. She has a brutal detox experience. Um, but thankfully, she gets clean. I mean, that's what happened to fiance. Like he, I can't imagine detoxing in jail, but also it might be the only place you can detox. You really can because there's you can't, there's you can't no do anything it. about it. Like yeah, yeah, but I can't imagine like like I know what being hungover is like. I can't imagine what it's being so much worse, shaking, sweating, sick like yearning for multiple days in a row. Oh, it's yeah. It's so long. Yeah. And I mean, it's getting clean is definitely one thing prison will do for you. I mean, it just, it sucks. Right. So prison should also, we need to reform that shit. uh, We need to reform our prison session. Dorothea Dix. Let's all look her up. She tried in America Mm -hmm. in the early 1900s, but Nobody fucking listened because she was a woman. Okay, go ahead. All right. So she is released on March 16th, 1948. She gets out a little early for good behavior. And when she gets back, she comes in through Newark, New Jersey, and her friend Bobby Tucker comes to meet her to pick her up. And he brings her beloved dog, Mr., to greet her. She loved dogs. It's just something we don't really get into too much. But Mr. saw her and he knocked her to the ground. He was so excited to see her. So now that she is out and clean, her manager and her friends help her to put together a comeback concert. And she was really hesitant. She was like, why would an audience want to see me? 
like after all this, after they know that I'm a drug addict, like who would want to see me? Which like, again, breaks my heart because like Beyonce still thinks that and it's been years. Oh, he he's been clean for a I mean, decade almost almost a decade and he still feels that way oh. so it's just a feeling that doesn't go he away. literally opens the fridge when i say you can have any beer you want and he will purposely take the cheapest beer because he feels like he's not worth it and it's not okay it's just like it it like this story is so hard because it breaks my fucking heart like because i just see i see casey throughout the whole well, thing people like, don't treat addiction the way that they treat other problems the way that they treat other disabilities the way that they treat other illnesses and they should and that's what's upsetting yeah so she's really hesitant but they convince her to do it and so on march 27th 1948 can't believe we're still only in the 40s (laughs) she plays carnegie hall to a sold out crowd and this broke a record because it was the most amount of pre-sold tickets. 2,700 pre-sold tickets to this event. And while performing, someone brought her a box of gardenias. She opened the box and she goes, my old trademark. She said, I took them out of the box and fastened them just like smack to the side of my head without even looking twice. But... (laughs) There was a hat pin in the gardenias and she unknowingly stuck this hat pin into the side of her head. She goes out on stage. She goes, I didn't feel anything until the blood started rushing down into my eyes and ears. (laughs) And she said, after the third curtain call, I passed out. It was all just so overwhelming, just physically and emotionally. And like, it was just this incredible moment for her one month later her manager arranged for her to star in her own broadway show called holiday on broadway which ran for about three weeks to sold out performances but unfortunately her options were a little limited after her release because she had been stripped of her cabaret card i didn't know what this was but Apparently, it was kind of like a permit that performers in New York had to acquire to allow them to perform in places that sold alcohol, a.k.a. another way for the government to punish people they didn't like, mainly black artists. So it happened to a lot of people, again, mainly black artists, and it would basically be like, well, you know, you don't get your card now, so you can't perform basically anywhere in New York. They could perform outside of New York and it like on like places that didn't sell alcohol, but it's like it severely limits their income. Mm. And it led to a lot of artists losing their livelihood like completely. And now because she had fewer options, she fell in with another bad guy, John Levy. He was the owner of this place called Club Ebony. And he was like, no, like I own a club. So I don't really care about the cabaret card. You can perform here. It's fine. But he quickly took over her finances, made her financially dependent on him, which was easier once she fell back into her heroin addiction. He was also extremely physically abusive, sometimes kicking her when she was on the floor. And then he would literally like, 
kick her and like hit her never in her face or her arms because he never wanted to show and he would literally tape her up so she could just stand up and then throw her out on stage because he still needed to make money off of her Things got even crazier after one of her performances in L.A. when she like kind of like performed. She came backstage and she's like, oh, yeah, this guy tried to get fresh with me. Levy flipped out, picked up a butcher knife and went out to stab the man that had like touched Billy. But an innocent civilian got in the way and he ended up stabbing this random person who then stumbled out onto the stage with a butcher knife lodged in them stop i know my biggest fear is somebody coming after me with a a knife so scary i would rather you shoot me it's so scary and of course the police showed up and just like arrested everyone so billy's arrested again she gets out on bail and she goes on to her next door destination which is in san francisco But she is arrested there as well in January of 1949 for drug possession. Um, But this time she does get legal counsel because she's adamant she's been framed. Um, And because that also is like another possibility that people talk about that, like, you know, obviously there's no doubt about it that she was doing drugs. But some people think that the agents were like planting drugs, like more like more drugs around her. I don't know. It's a very sticky situation. But. She also gets help right now from another lady, Tallulah Bankhead, who's a very famous actress at this time. Tallulah wrote, she comes from a very influential family. She's a very famous actress. She writes a bunch of letters to people like J. Edgar Hoover. And she's like, just please pardon my friend. Uh, It didn't help too much, but she was really there for Billy at this time, probably because they were in the midst of a romantic relationship. (laughs) Although we know much more about Billy's male partners, she was openly bisexual and took female partners as well. And her and Tallulah, some people are like, no, they were just friends. But like most people were like, they were definitely because like Tallulah Bankhead was also openly bisexual. And I feel like bisexual was not even like you couldn't even categorize yourself as that. You're yeah. either straight, gay or, or lesbian. Yeah. And so... They were definitely in some sort of relationship. Um, But thankfully, by the time of her trial, Billy had been clean again. So she passed the drug test. She's not found guilty. Okay. So we're in the 50s now. Fucking finally. Um, But it's just more of the same shit. She's getting together with men who take advantage of her. She's falling back into her addiction. One of these men is a guy named Louis McKay, who people are kind of torn on. Some say he was a good guy who supported her through this time and tried to get her as hard as he could off of heroin and, like, get her career on track. But others say he was just like all the other men, just an abusive wannabe gangster louse. So, like, I don't – I listen to so many people talk about him, and I don't know what to make of him. What I can say is that she did start to use heroin a little less, like, in the beginning of their relationship – Um, But it meant she was drinking a lot more. Uh, In 1954, she goes on tour in Europe for the first time to just wonderful, enthusiastic crowds. It's a huge success. She also continues to tour in the U.S. She receives positive reviews. And now she's finally, finally making some money again. Um, 
but McKay is using it to fund his real estate ventures. Right. <laughs> so he is kind of at least taking her money. Um, and then McKay convinces her to write an autobiography. So she gets together with a writer friend of hers, this guy, William Dufty, who was just one of her closest friends. Like, they got very, very close, and they would remain so... I mean, she was the godmother of his children. Like, they were very close. And they worked together on this project, um, but it didn't go as smoothly as planned because, obviously, there were some people in her life that she did things with that people didn't want to get out. And one of these people was Tallulah Bankhead, which points me more in the direction that they were definitely lovers. Yeah. Tallulah did not give Billy permission to write about her and even told people, I don't even know her. Mm, interesting. Which really hurt Billy's feelings. And it just completely destroyed their relationship. And so this like big person in her life. It was like deny me three times type of deal. Exactly. Um, in 1956, Lady Sings the Blues is published. Um, this is her autobiography that she writes um, with William Dufty, and it was very well received. But then in 1956, she also gets busted for drugs again, this time with Louis McKay. The couple had been using heroin and cocaine in their hotel room to make speedballs. So it's why it kind of gives a little bit more credit to the fact that like maybe he like was not on the up and up because they got caught together and they both tested positive for drugs. Like, could that all have been fabricated? Like, sure. Could have been, but I it don't might not know. Be his, I, I mean, it takes a lot of effort for that. To yeah. Be, yeah. And also like, from what I like, from what I understood in the documentary about her, like the friends like didn't like him. Mm. Uh, thankfully they were just put on probation for a year. Um, but they got married in 1957 just in case anything went to court. He went, he wanted to make sure that they couldn't like testify against each other. In 1958, she recorded her last album, Lady in Satin, with the Ray Ellis Orchestra, which some people say is her best record because you can hear just the decades worth of pain in her voice. But for others, it just makes them sad. I mean, her voice, the one thing about her voice is it actually speaks to how she's feeling, Yeah, which I think a lot of people fake it. And you can tell that she is not faking it. No, she's not. Um, but when you hear some of the outtakes, it does get kind of sad because you can just hear her like stop and she's like, I don't remember the lyrics and Ray Ellis is talking about it. And he was like, you know, it just got worse as the day went on because he was like, I mean, I went over and like, she was drinking out of this little like white tea mug. I thought she was drinking water. And then I took a swig of it and it was gin. Like she was just drinking all day. And it like, so it's just a really controversial record because some people love it and some people hate it. Um, but also around this time, she made some other notable TV appearances on shows in the U.S. and England. But by 1959, her health was just the worst that it had ever been. She was completely emaciated. She had lost a ton of weight. And after she just completely collapsed one day, she was taken to the hospital. The first hospital denied her because they saw that she had track marks on her arm and they said, we don't take drug addicts. Oh, fuck that. 
So she ended up at Metropolitan Hospital in New York on May 31st, 1959, and she was diagnosed with liver failure and heart disease and a kidney infection. Her body was just breaking it's down. Done. She was in really bad shape, and then on June 11th, a nurse came in and found white powder by her bed. She reported it. The police came, and they handcuffed her to her hospital bed and completely sealed off her room. They told doctors to stop treating her with methadone so that her withdrawal symptoms were in full swing. They took mug shots of her and fingerprinted her while she literally lay dying in her hospital bed. They told her, look, just tell her, just like tell us who your supplier is. And she's like, I'm not going to tell you that. And they're like, frankly, we're going to let you die here. Like, sorry, I'm going to redo that. (laughs) They said, frankly, we don't care if we take you to a prison and you die from all of this shit. Like, you either tell us or you die. Like, basically is what they were telling her. And she was just so over it. Apparently, she was like, literally, what will they think of next? Like, I am not going to live for very much longer. And they're still trying to arrest me for this shit. Her attorney was able to convince a judge to postpone her criminal case until she was out of the hospital. But unfortunately, Billy never got well. She passed away on July 17, 1959, at the age of 44, with 70 cents in the bank. Oh, my God, I can't. But she had $750 tucked away between her legs Literally. I would not have believed this story if I hadn't heard this guy tell it himself. Stop. Her dear friend, William Dufty, who had written her book with her, was with her. And she was like, I need you to write one more article about me. Just do it for me. Do it about my heroin addiction. I don't care. I just, I can't die penniless. So he sold the article for $750. He gave the money to Billy. She rolled it up and he said she stuck it between her legs so that no one could get it. And after she passed away, he said someone showed up at my door with a wad of cash wrapped up in a towel and said, Billy said, this is for you. She left it to him anyways, but she was like, I just want to have something that someone can't take that is fucking wild her funeral mass was held on july 21st 1959 at the church of saint paul the apostle in manhattan she was buried at saint saint raymond cemetery in the bronx she has of course lived on in a few films notably portrayed by diana ross in 1972 in lady sings the blues and Andrew Day in the United States versus Billie Holiday, which was released this year. In 1985, a statue of her was erected in Baltimore, and another piece of her legacy lives on here as well, in the Baltimore Museum of Art. There is a statue called Strange Fruit, which was created by Alison Saar. 
that it's always moved me because you see it when you're like it's in a kind of like a separate room and you pass through a shimmering blue beaded curtain and it's just one of those exhibits like you kind of see the silhouette of it and then you pass through this like beautiful blue beaded curtain and you just see this black woman tied upside down hanging from the ceiling and I just I would highly recommend anyone go to the Baltimore Museum of Art it's a beautiful museum but this exhibit since I was a child has taken my breath away and it's one of those things like not many people come to Baltimore and so not many people have seen it and it it's hard to look at it is hard to look at and I think they whoever the curator was did such a good job because it's literally like you see you're like what is that and then you walk through this beautiful thing to like just this horrendous visual statue and I and like then they have the plate and it's called strange fruit and like the whole picture kind of comes into mind I think it's even um it's even passionate for like so the first time I took my kids there we were in there and Caroline was very young so she couldn't speak very well but she just kept saying I want to see it I want to see it and we understood that she wanted to be upside down so producer picked her up by her legs Mm. So that she could look at it, and I just I have this, and I it's like a crazy picture, but it's a picture of producer holding Caroline upside down by yeah. her legs, looking at this upside down woman <sighs> hanging from the ceiling because she wanted to see it, and she didn't understand what it meant, yeah. but she wanted to see it like what she considered like right side up, right side up, like I want to see it, and it is it is a stunning sculpture it really is and it's just one of the most moving pieces of art i've ever seen and it might not have been possible without billy's determination to make that song a civil rights anthem and i just applaud her for it and that's the story of billy holiday katie <laughs> it's so sad like but it's an incredible journey you did such a good job thank you I feel I I feel bad because a lot it's like a lot of back and forth and I was really struggling with how to string it all together and because I also think that some people view addiction as like you're addicted and that's it your life is over and like she lived with it for so long and succeeded with it that's another thing it's like she had a career while doing this for many many years I mean addiction is like having a food allergy you have to be able to both exist with it learn how to get past it and learn without it like you know what like there are people who like my brother for example who are allergic to peanut butter and they can go out on Halloween and have that candy it's so different to be in an, a situation where you are trying to live without this thing that is going to destroy your life, but yeah. it's so passionate for you. Yeah. And what, I mean, what a story, what a story about racial and feminine history. What yeah. a story about Baltimore history, yeah. about addiction history. Well, I think we need to talk about these two women together in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay. 
So number one, <laughs> I think the most important thing that needs to be said in this entire episode is, are you okay? Because <laughs> I know that like when I'm doing research with somebody that has been sexually assaulted, that's too hard for me. Yeah. And I have a really bad fucking week. Yeah. And I think that this is your bad fucking week. So before the podcast, before the just the two of us, like it's more important that like, are you okay? Yeah. I mean, I am okay. It's just, it also, it just so happened to come this episode come in a week where like fiance and I are doing a lot of wedding planning and we're meeting with our caterer and we're doing all this stuff. And it was like, and he also like, just like the other day, like I, I was literally doing research and this was a lot of research for me because their story was really long and complicated. And Casey just like came home and he was like, I got dinner and he like made dinner. Cause like I normally cook cause Casey works long hours and he was like, just focus on this. And like, he made us this like incredible dinner. And I just like, I was just reflecting a lot about him and how much I love him and I'm proud of him and just, I am okay. But it was like, just like a rough week of like, he could totally not be here right now. And yeah, it's, it's nearly impossible to talk about. It really is because it, <laughs> and the thing is too, like, I'm also like, it's hard. Cause I'm also constantly afraid of like, I know it's been almost 10 years and I'm still afraid of it. Like there's no end to addiction. No. And I know, I remember my dad told me that when I was younger, cause he obviously also, was friends with a lot of people who suffered with addiction. And he was like, he always tells me, he's like, I'm really proud of Casey because like Casey is still like afraid of it. And he was like, it's really, it's kind of when you're like, no, I totally got this. Like that it kind of happens because like Casey is still afraid of falling back into it. And it, and it sucks. And it should suck. And it's, I just, I think that's the most important thing to say about these stories that like, it doesn't make it easy. No. Like, God, no. Being successful doesn't fucking make it easy. And both these women showed that. Oh, absolutely. And I just like, it's, this is a very interesting pairing because I felt, I, I feel like even from their beginnings, like, they both learned survival in such different ways because like, obviously you can't really compare like <laughs> Billy literally being a prostitute, like a sex worker at 15 years old versus Martha babysitting for Yankees. Like, <laughs> right. And I wrote that down. I was like, there is, there is a big difference between being lower income white person and I'm not saying that like being white in general or being rich in general makes it easier I'm saying there is a big fucking difference yeah. between being lower middle class in the 1940s and being black and nothing in the late 1800s early 1900s like yeah. their stories are 
are like they should technically be comparable. They're two women who built themselves up from yeah, nothing. From nothing. But they're not comparable because the world was unwilling to accept a black woman who was confronting them from a weird angle. And they were like, oh, a white woman who does what she's supposed to do, cooks and sews. We love it. Yeah. And it sucks because she wasn't doing that. Martha Stewart's an entrepreneur. Yeah. She owned a business. <laughs> she had the, but she presented the way that men wanted her to present. So it was fine. Yeah. And it's just very interesting seeing them as one is kind of embracing social norms for women to get ahead. And Billy had to really reject social norms of women. She was like, no, like I am going to walk down the street and like drink this 40 and call that guy a cocksucker because like she just didn't give a shit anymore. And she was like, and she also like, a part of her story, from what I understand, too, is like when she was younger, she was like, I don't want to be held to anyone's standards. You know what I'm saying? Which is ironic because it's like these standards that are almost like created and supported by Martha Stewart, you know, yeah. which is so interesting because like Martha Stewart also breaks them herself while also enforcing them. Like, I don't know how to marry that sometimes in my head. I think it's it's interesting to marry because like. Billie Holiday is like cast in this role where she has to be a domestic worker. Yeah. She's like, no, fuck you. I'm not going to do that. And Martha Stewart is like, literally, I'm going to make 10 magazines a year about how to be good at the domestic sphere. Yeah. But I think so much of that is based on what you're allowed to do. Mm -hmm. Like a black domestic woman is allowed to be a servant. A white domestic woman is allowed to host parties. And that is where the divide comes in. It's an unfair, like, stigmatism of women, women based on their skin color. No, it absolutely is. And it's so interesting because I feel like they were kind of similar in their work. Like, I feel like both of them didn't like to sit still. Like, when we talk about Billy in her early career, she is like back and forth between all these bands and clubs because she just always wanted to be performing, you know, and she just was always trying to like stand up for herself too. Like I find a lot of connection between Billy saying, no, that's not how I do it. I don't sing Ella Fitzgerald songs. I sing Billy holiday songs. And with Martha being like, that's not how you set a table. You know, it's like they're saying the same thing, but there's a politics of respectability that is so different because we don't like it when women of color, especially like just black women, stand up for themselves. It makes them look bitchy and loud. And like it is this horrible social pressure we put on especially black women to just not stand up for themselves it's like it comes with such a negative connotation and I think there's such an interesting like learning point when you start to really look at diversity and you say diversity isn't just race Mm -hmm. it isn't just gender it's also race gender and social class race gender and sexuality race gender and blah 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 you know there's such a long list that it becomes this point where you're like wow Anybody that doesn't fit the mold has this random array of things they're supposed to fit into. Yeah. And 
I mean, Martha Stewart obviously is one of the people who, and it's the same way that I have lived my life as a middle-class white woman. I can ride myself into a wealthy Mm -hmm. white man party and I will not get kicked out. I will fall in line. I'm supposed to be there. Nobody thinks it's weird. So I don't have that view of somebody who's othered being Mm -hmm. like, I can't even walk in. There's no coattails for me to ride. Yeah. No. Scary. It is very scary. And I feel like this just leads us into like what happens when these two women who exist very differently (laughs) in the world get to breaking the law. Right. Like, I just think it's so bananas that they both went to prison in West Virginia (laughs) in very different times as very different people. And I mean, we have to look obviously at white collar crime versus like what they call like street crime. Yeah. But I do love that they didn't let Martha Stewart out early. Yeah. She was told five months, five months with the collar on your leg. And then two years after that, she did not get I mean, it could have been like an easy sentence as compared to somebody oh, who's yeah. like selling weed in Baltimore. Like they shouldn't be in jail. Like no. decriminalize that shit. Absolutely. But she, for what she was sentenced, she served the entire thing. Yeah. And like after she was in, she didn't fucking whine about it. She just no. went in, did her she thing, did her time. and rolled. Yeah. And I think that's what like it's also a big difference in between her and Billie Holiday is like Martha Stewart, like she got fucking caught, you know, but Billie Holiday was targeted and sought after. The thing that really gets me is just like, you know, what I said at the end, like there were other famous people doing drugs, doing shitty things, whatever, but they weren't getting caught because they weren't a black female jazz musician. And that's what fucking bugs me. And isn't that interesting that what white collar crime actually means is somebody who's successful that actually got caught. And the criminal justice system is somebody that we want to fuck over. Yeah. No, Be- that's exactly it. Because we actually should be working much, much harder on how to rehabilitate people that are struggling. Mm-hmm. Not criminals, people that are struggling. Yeah. And it's very interesting that, like, we're talking, too, about two very, very public figures who had big like public image crises when their shit went on. Like I remember like people like didn't think that Martha Stewart was going to be able to bounce back from that. No, they were like, this is it. This is, girl, like, this is it. Girl, She's girl, done. And then she did. But Billie Holiday, like that's what's interesting about her is that she never went away completely. She always was still respected as like this jazz artist and like she had this kind of bad rap, but like there was a more permanent loss though because she wasn't getting the help she needed, you know? Yes, but her, I think her singing Strange Fruit, her Strange Fruit is Martha Stewart living. Mm. You can't get rid of it. It doesn't matter how hard you try it is an American stay piece. Yeah. So like strange fruit, it's something we're going to read in our English curriculum, American poem unit 
for the rest of eternity mm -hmm. because it is actually something that happened in the United States. Martha Stewart living is actually a full-fledged thing that happened. Yeah. You have to acknowledge it. If you don't acknowledge those two things, then you're ignoring history. You're missing it. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I just, I kind of think of this scene in uh, the United States versus Billie Holiday where she's like sick in her hospital bed after they've arrested her while she's literally dying. Right. And she looks at Anslinger, which probably didn't happen in real life. I don't think he came <laughs> to the hospital, but she was like, your grandchildren will be singing Strange Fruit. Like this song isn't going away. It, and it didn't. It didn't. It's the and only it thing hasn't. I identify with her. Yeah. And I don't know. I just, I think it's also interesting that they had these kind of big comebacks. Like obviously Martha Stewart's was longer lasting. Like Billie Holiday obviously kept relapsing. But we also have to talk about drugs and how Martha Stewart is now. I mean, she has like a CBD line of things. Yeah. She is profiting from things that, People get sent to prison for. Right. And it's it's really scary because we are willing to send people to prison for things that wealthy people have decriminalized. Yeah. And that is not okay. Decriminalized for themselves. Like I can't but not help, for other people. I can't help to think of the abortion bans that are happening in Texas right now. And the the fact of the matter is that like wealthy women will always have access to abortions because they have way more options. So like, don't tell me this is an abortion ban for every woman in Texas. It's an abortion ban for, for poor, women. poor women in Texas. It is so dangerous because it is just reinforcing the notion that it's okay to discriminate against poor people of color. And like, literally every realm and like the fact that like billy holiday again like her life was fucking ruined by drugs because like people just like wouldn't help her not couldn't wouldn't, wouldn't. and would not help her there's also a big racial divide in texas too yes. because there's a huge hispanic um latinx population that lives in texas so what you're doing is making a racial divide of when abortion is illegal because you are literally saying these people breed too much. Yeah, yeah. Which is a you disgusting are. and terrible thing to say. And to act like, and we've gone over this on the podcast time and time again, that it is not okay to regulate women's reproductive systems. I just know. Especially because the people doing it are typically. People that have never, ever been in the position of what if this happened to me? Right. And that, I just, I feel like that happened to Billy a lot. Like no one around her was like, what if this happened to me? Mm. And because they couldn't imagine being a rich black woman. No. And it just makes me sad because I feel <sighs> like one of the other things is that Billy's saw from an early age she said when she was a kid she was like a man is never going to take my money and then it fucking happened over and over over and over again mm -hmm. and uh, i almost feel like martha stewart did the same thing of she was like i like you know like she grew up in like a very privileged area but she also like knew that she had to fend for herself you know 
And Mm -hmm. I feel like they kind of both grew up with this notion of like, I'm not going to take advantage of, be taken advantage of. And I don't know. I just, I feel so bad for Billy that like her worst fears came true in her own life. Mm. I think we need to toast her. Yeah, we do. Okay. So all I want to do is toast the ladies that never cops stop coming for it. Mm. It's just like day after day after day, Mm. I'm going to fight. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do it. And when you tell me no, I'm going to find a new way. Yeah. And those are the ladies that I Mm. just think need a toast tonight because sometimes it doesn't feel like anybody's cheering. Cheers. Um, I am obviously going to toast women who are struggling with any sort of addiction. You know, I feel like we always be like, well, drug addiction is the worst. And it's like, it's the socially the worst, but like everybody has things that they wish they could not feel addicted to. Mm. And I just, I want people who out there who are struggling with addictions as like serious as heroin and as like seemingly inconsequential as like, you know, addiction to like social media, just you are more than the thing that you can't seem to quit. Mm. And no matter what it is, no matter if you think it is a trivial thing or a very serious thing, it just like, it doesn't define you. And it's not the most important thing about you. So cheers to that. Cheers. <laughs> cheers. You can do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> what am I going to promote? After that serious talk, what are you going to promote in popular culture? So it's something I haven't even watched yet. I just heard about it like this <laughs> week. And I just really think that I want to see what they do. There's a new show coming out called How I Met Your Father. Oh, no. <laughs> and I cannot fucking wait to see what the hell they do with this. And that's all I'm going to say because I haven't okay. seen it. I don't okay. even know the whole cast. I'm very curious. I am just trying to put it out there. That okay, this is a good thing. vibes for people trying to be creative. Okay. You know what? You know, hey. Good on you. I can't write a TV show. No, they did Girl Meets World. It worked out. Worked out fine. We'll see what happens. And All I just, right. hey, I'm here for we'll see what happens. You don't have to watch it. I'll watch it and report back. Report back because I want to know. Okay. Okay. What do you got? I'm going to promote another black female artist doja cat she's ah! so fun yeah she is fun i love her every one of her songs i am just like this is the catchiest thing i've ever heard she's my best friend she's a real bad bitch i just i love that song i love her so much and i think that her songs are so fun katie female rappers are on the rise right now i'm just really into her so yeah listen to her she has a couple of really good songs um that i've listened to but yeah but she's really fun so yeah all right Find well, us everywhere. please do. We're on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and everywhere. But mostly, we would really appreciate it if you left an iTunes, Apple podcast, whatever the heck it is nowadays, review. Yeah, review us. Find us on Patreon. You get oh. weekly updates of us being so drunk and doing shenanigans. Yeah, um, because let me tell you, we record the Patreon stuff after we record the episode. So if you think we're tipsy now... 
Whoa. Just wait. You don't even know. Yeah. And so, I have to work tomorrow, so. Me too. Every day. I have to be All in day. someone's house tomorrow morning. Shit, I have to in control a stranger's, children. Have, like in a stranger's house. Um, no, mine doesn't even compare. Send me the um, present. They both compare. I'm going to be alone in a stranger's house tomorrow. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, I'm going to have 30 kids. That Pray I have for me. Control. Pray um, for you. <laughs> um, okay. Find us everywhere. We love you. You're the greatest. And... Just never forget, please, dear God, <laughs> that well-behaved women <laughs> have family rules about Monopoly. They do. <laughs> I know we never did, and they rarely make history. <laughs> listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye